1: Just call 888-441-7290 or go to com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southernhypensense.com, and click on the icon for my Patriot food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888 888- four four one seven two nine oh or go to my website Southern Sense put a dash in the middle Southern hyphen sense dot com. Be prepared. All right and welcome to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio on Southern Sense. Live also on SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, oh, Facebook, YouTube, oh, the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern com. I'm your hostess with the mostest, the radio chick Annie, along with my debonair and so-so erudite <laughs> co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon and another happy Friday, Curtis.
2: Indeed it is and I'm happy to be back I, I was just looking at the calendar and I see we only have one more week left in the month. So this year is taking off pretty fast, but I'm looking forward to this
1: great it lineup is, we is. have today. It is year is passing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we got an exciting lineup. Uh we got Dr. Everett uh Piper joining us once again. Um he is the uh president of the Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and he had an outstanding editorial he had posted. Um, I forget which paper it was in, uh, but it ended up uh, being passed around and going viral, and a friend of mine sent it to me, thinking it's something I hadn't seen before, but by the way, I know Dr. Pepper, Dick, (laughs) and he prompted me to call (laughs) Dr. Pepper and invite him back on. Uh, So we're going to be talking to him about it. He's got some great books out there. It's like not a kitty daycare. (laughs) He's writing about the whininess of kids today, how pampered they are. Uh, We also have Dr. Alveda King. She is the niece of Martin Luther King Jr. She's also the executive director of civil rights for the unborn as well as a pastor in her own uh, ministry. We'll be talking to her about the new abortion laws and prison reform. Um, also we have Sergeant Mike McGrew, a former police officer who's now a pastor and he's got a fantastic story to tell also. Um, he has a book, uh, oh God, it's uh I just had a major brain fart, the name of his book. Uh Beyond the Call of Duty, I think is the name of it, but I'll double mm-hmm. check that. And also we've got a new guest out. Uh his name is Clint Johnson. He's a historian. And he's got a new book out called Tin Cans and Greyhounds, The Destroyers That Won Two World Wars. Very, very interesting book. Highly recommend it. Um, that That is going to be, I think, published next month. I'm not sure. I'll have to double check with him what the actual publication date is. So we got ourselves some great guests and a lot to talk about. Uh, Trump signed the budget deal. And, of course, what's in it has really shocked everyone. Lo and behold, the Dems pulled another fast one. So we're going to be talking about that probably somewhere along the way. Uh, He also declared today an executive emergency, a nationwide emergency. And he's using the power of the phone and the pen for an executive order. Where have we heard that one before? There's been something like over 70 executive orders since Jimmy Carter. But the second Trump pulls one, Everyone goes into a major tailspin. Oh, Knipsing. good lord. Oh, unbelievable. The <laughs> so.
2: sky is falling. The sky is falling, Moe.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, I forgot to take some stuff off the printer, so bear with me, Curtis, just for a second when I reach back to it. Oh. No, that's just I have fine. a whole stack of art and stuff that that uh, I forgot to take off the printer before coming on air. <laughs> oh. <Toy. laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, in this new uh, budget that he just signed on, uh, of course, we find out what's in it after you passed the bill, Nancy Pelosi. Um, funds can only be used to make steel bollard designs. It's only one specific type of design that can be used on this. Um, so any experimental walls, any prototypes they can't use. It secures more than $3.1 billion in foreign health services, more than twice for the wall. Um, the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security cannot increase border crossing fees. So to pay for all these illegal aliens pouring across the wall, we can't increase the revenues to pay for these people. The border wall construction is only allowed in the Rio Grande Valley sector, which is a small area. Now you think about the size of that border that stretches from the Pacific coast through the Gulf coast. That's more than 55 miles folks, but the border wall only supplies it for 55 miles. The bill does not expand catch and release by reducing the number of border beds from 49,060 to 40,520. There's no funding for additional enforcement and removal of field personnel. That means no more ICE agents to deport people already in the country. It expands the Alternatives to detention program from 82,000 to 100,000. So instead of housing family units at the border, they get moved to the interior where they almost always stay in the country permanently. It provides $40 million for additional ICE staffing dedicated to overall case management, particularly for asylum seekers. So no new ICE agents, but money to ICE to help illegals settle in a non-detention center in the country. So in other words, they're going to take them and farm them out to all the different 50 states. And probably coming to a hotel near you, like Canada is mm-hmm. doing. It gives... $3.4 billion in refugee assistance, $74 million more than last year. Uh, do we see any increase in veteran benefits? No. Do we see any increase to the Social Security recipients, those that retired, worked all their lives, paid into Social Security? A minimum of course not. amount. But no, we increase money going to illegal aliens. $4.4 uh, 4 in international disaster assistance, $100 million more than last year. It does not eliminate any foundations that Trump wanted to get rid of, including the Asia Foundation, the U.S. African Development Foundation, the Inter-American uh, Foundation, the U.S. Trade and Development Agency. And once again, Republicans got outplayed. So this is this is the budget bill that Trump signed. Oh, Anyway, I want to welcome everyone that's showing up in the chair room and that's also listening in uh, in the studio. Reminded to those listening in the studio, you want to participate in the show, please remember to press one on the dial and we'll be happy to bring you in. That said, Curtis, um, we have our guest Clint Johnson at the last half of the show, and he wrote the book tin cans and greyhounds and because of what he wrote I picked out a fallen hero those that listen to the show know we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero and sometimes it's really difficult for me to dig up information on the heroes so I have to go to various different sources and sometimes it takes me hours sometimes even days to dig up just a little bit so today's dedication is going to go out to a hero that is written about in the book Tin Cans and Greyhounds by Clint Johnson. And today's dedication is going out to Lieutenant uh, J.G. Stanton Frederick Hawk. He died December 6th of 1917 after the torpedoing of his destroyer by a German U-boat during World War I. And this is from Military Wikipedia. Graduated from the Navy Academy in 1916 after serving on the battleship, the USS Florida, which was a BB-30. He was assigned to the destroyer, the U.S. Jacob Jones, DD-61, on 10 September, 1917. While steaming on patrol duty from Brest, France to Queenstown, Ireland, Jacob Jones was attacked on the 6th of December by German submarine U-53. Although Kalk, officer of the deck during the attack, took correct and especially prompt measures in maneuvering to avoid the torpedo, the destroyer could not turn in time to escape. She sank stern first in eight minutes. Though stunned by the explosion and weakened by his action after the ship went down, Calk swam from one raft to another in an attempt to equalize weight on them. Displaying extraordinary heroism, he disregarded his own condition while endeavoring to save the lives of his men. Game to the last, Calk overtaxed his own strength. He died from exposure and exhaustion. For his splendid self-sacrifice, Lieutenant J.G. Calk was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Medal. And this was taken, I'm trying to see where I took this from, uh, from the archives on Lucky Bag. And it appears to have been a letter written from one shipmate to another concerning Lieutenant J.G. Stanton Frederick Calk, entitled Sue, which appears to be the nickname of Lieutenant J.G. Cock. Here is a person who lives to eat. If you want to hit him where he is weak, invite him out to have a plank steak, or better yet, let him invite you, for he believes in eating at any price, and boxes, well, the whole left-wing campus outside of his door at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Speaking of camping, shh, dangerous ground. Every year, he spends part of his leave camping near the Shenandoah, and to hear him rave, he certainly do enjoy them. When he comes to you about the, oh well, same old song, another verse, before he came into the Navy, he was quite a naturalist and can still tell you the race, color, and previous condition of servitude of any bird simply by hearing it pass by. He would rather fish off the mole at jib than go ashore and he will tell you about the three-foot sunfish that he almost caught there. They wouldn't bite, neither would we. But don't gather from this that Sue hasn't attracted attention while here. Youngster year after winning a three-legged race, he gained renown by almost diving, driving a winning team for the old Seventh Company in a chariot race in regular Ben Hurst style. He would have won, but for the fact that the laws of physics overcame his true Roman spirit and on rounding a turn, forced him to relinquish his command and make a flying war at the edge of the crowd. Incidentally, he spent several days in sickbay. Sue is a soccer player and shares with Captain Zerol the honor of scoring the points of our championship team. He is supposed to have an ear for music for he often entertains Freddie with Neapolitan like strains from his mandolin until Freddie becomes disgusted and plays the thing himself. Sue, while quiet, enjoys a rough house and is as true a friend as any man could wish. Anyone will be happy to have him for a shipmate. He is decidedly quiet and may require an effort on your part to become acquainted with him, but your w- efforts will be well expanded. Pictured in the video is a painting by F. Lewis Mora depicting Lieutenant J.G. Cox assisting survivors of the USS Jacob Jones, destroyer number 61, after she was sunk by a German submarine, U-53, off the Skiddley Islands on December 6, 1917. A plaque accompanying this painting read, The Jacob Jones was sunk by an enemy torpedo between Brest and Queenstown. Lieutenant J.G. S.F. Calk rendered conspicuous and gallant services after the ship sank by helping men from one raft to another so as to equalize the weight on the rafts. He died of exposure and exhaustion in order to save others. Lieutenant J.G. Calk was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal posthumously. And finally, the Navy. Navy has named two destroyers in honor of Lieutenant Junior Grade Cock. The USS Cock Destroyer number 170, later DD 170, which sailed between 1919 and 1940. And the USS Cock DD 611, which sailed between 1942 and 1969. Today's show is dedicated to Lieutenant J.G. Cock, and to all the brave men and women that serve in our military, from the birth of our nation through today and into its future. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We dedicate to them with this song by Todd Allen Herndon: My Name is America. May God bless each and every one.
3: of oppression, I fought for my liberty, I came with the blood of my people, freedom has never been free, now my door's always open, to dreamers and friends, But even the virtues I stand for, I respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants.
1: All right, Todd Allen Harrington. My name is America. We're waiting for our first guest to call in. Uh, just sent him a text to remind him to dial in. Um, I want to welcome again everyone that's up in the chat room. You're here listening to Southern Sense live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star, Daily News, up on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, Spreaker. Oh, the heck with it. Just go to the name of the show. Southern sense, put a dash in the middle. Of Southern. Calm. All right, Curtis. Curtis, you're going to have to unmute yourself in order to participate in the conversation here. So, Curtis, you're unmuted now. Oh. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah, I,
2: I was dropped out <laughs> and I forgot to <laughs> unmute. <laughs> I'll tell you.
1: Joy. between Skype, and I'm the one that does that most of the time.
2: <laughs> yeah. Between Skype and.
1: Oh, man.
2: That's just the challenge.
1: It looks like we're still having problems with the YouTube uh, broadcasting. Um, it keeps on going up and down, up and down. I don't know what's going on. I may have to switch computers uh, on the next time we do the show. Again, I want to welcome everyone that's up in the chat room. We have so much that's going on and talking about. Um, I came across this one item, and I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, I was cracking up, but it, it's too sad to be actually funny. Uh, over in Bloomingdale's uh, in Manhattan, they had a T-shirt on display on one of the mannequins. And someone from the press, a journalist, happened to have been walking through Bloomingdale, saw the T-shirt, freaked out, was traumatized complained to the management and had them remove the shirt so they no longer are, are selling this one particular shirt. Curtis, guess what the t-shirt said on it? You might take a wild guess that got this one journalist up in arms, so traumatized. Oh, how dare they? Guess. Well,
2: God bless America. You. God bless America. No. <laughs> Make America no.
3: great
1: again. It was um. No <laughs> I think MAGA would don't
2: know. definitely
1: trigger the left It was Hashtag fake news oh, <laughs> That's God. a t-shirt Hashtag fake news That's offensive man Just journalists See this They got so offended They were traumatized That's what they told management They were traumatized They were insulting legitimate journalists out there well, if you are a legitimate journalist, first off, if you're an American journalist, you believe in free speech. Mm-hmm. No, at, no matter what, That's, uh, this is free speech. So obviously, you're well, not a legitimate a, journalist.
2: Yeah. there's a guy that got kicked out of Disneyland for um, sporting some kind of um, sign saying um, "Vote for Trump in 2020," something like that. "Make
1: America Great Again" hat. He was wearing a Make America Great Again hat out of Disneyland, and this yeah. guy had been—they had asked him to remove, it. and he snuck back into the park a second time wearing the hat, knowing full well Disney was going to kick him out. So he was poking the bear. But hey, it's still free speech. I mean, I don't like Black Lives Matter T-shirts, but does that traumatize me? I will defend your right to be an idiot. your free speech. That—that that is an American First Amendment right but to get upset because this T-shirt in Bloomingdale said fake news and you're traumatized? We got our guest in on the line. Let me bring him in. And uh, while I'm in the middle of a rant, welcome aboard, Dr. Everett. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm are there- fine. I was talking about uh, this journalist in Manhattan that went into Bloomingdale's and got in all upset really traumatized to the point where she complained to the management of Bloomingdale's making them take the merchandise out of the store because the t-shirt that was on the mannequin said hashtag fake news can you imagine
4: oh it's just I I, (laughs) we live in such an infantilized (laughs) world today where anything that offends is supposed to be taken away if you don't like an idea if you don't like somebody else's opinion if you don't like any expression they have, you throw down the victimization card and you cry trigger warning, and somehow life is supposed to become good and safe just because you're uncomfortable. It's the antithesis of what the academy is supposed to be about. It's the antithesis of what a good liberal education was about, an education that challenged your character rather than coddled you and made you feel comfortable.
1: Yeah, and I just wonder where this thin skin came from all of a sudden. I mean, kids went out into the into the play yard. You taunted each other. Yeah, but you didn't go running home saying I'm being bullied unless you were actually really, truly being bullied. I mean, what kids today call bullying is not. I mean, heaven forbid they make fun of the freckles on your face. Now you're being bullied. I mean, come on. Kids are kids. Well, and- but to have a journalist say that they're legitimate, believing in free speech, but then hashtag fake news on a t-shirt upsets you?
4: Yeah, exactly. Well, in the Make America Great hat upsets people, uh, a t-shirt that has Jesus on it uh, upsets people, any commentary on sexual morality upsets people, um, and the list goes on and on. Students, uh, you confront their naivete with regard to socialism, and you suggest that maybe capitalism is a superior worldview and economic model that has prevailed over the course of time. You ask a rhetorical question like, well, show me an example where socialism has worked I just like to talk about that. And they throw the victimization card. They say, you've offended me. It's come to the point, frankly, that disagreement is synonymous with hate. And if I disagree with you, I somehow hate you. And therefore, any time Anytime there is a contrary idea, a challenging idea, an idea that could push you toward maturity, all you have to do is throw the hater card, and all bets are off. The conversation is silenced. It's ideological fascism. This is not academic freedom. And that's where we are right now in the academy and our culture at
5: large.
1: Well, you know, i got to tell you something. Um, I had a friend of mine. Uh, He actually – He's in the Republican Party uh, with me here in the county, and he always sends me these little emails, things that he thinks that I don't see or, or know about. And he actually sent me the um, the editorial that you, the opinion piece you wrote in the Washington Times, and I had a crack up because I sent him back. Well, I know Dr. Piper; he's been on my show, and the editorial uh, that you wrote was called "Questions for Progressive Preachers." It seemed that you got into a pissing contest with some preacher who seemed to feel that you you didn't know much about Christianity, and yet you're the president of a Christian university. (laughs) I I, I thoroughly enjoyed this piece.
4: Well, I don't know whether your friend agreed or disagreed with me, but uh, what I did in that article, as you know, is I've got this guy who's calling me out and suggesting that conservative ideas are somehow um, offensive and he, his question to me was, well, surely you can find some examples where the liberals are right and the conservatives are wrong. And I said, well, you tell me. What are you talking about? Are you suggesting that maybe it's right to kill babies 60 seconds before they're born? And now they're even arguing 60 seconds after they're born. But somehow it's wrong for me to try to protect those babies from a— party that's hell-bent on their extermination and execution. I mean, let's just talk about some of these questions where conservatives are wrong and liberals are right. How about the definition of women? Is it somehow right to dumb down the definition of a woman to a social construct, make-believe, a leprechaun, a unicorn. And it's wrong for me as a conservative to say, no, women are real. They're actual objective facts. A female is a fact, and she deserves her own bathroom, her own dignity, and her own identity, thank you. How am I wrong? And you're right. And I went through a list of questions like that. And needless to say, there was silence.
1: (laughs) Gee. You you know, because one of the things that she had written in there, um, is an argument I've been putting forward ever since Supreme Court came forward and defined marriage. And even when they were debating this case, I was fighting against it. And you have my exact argument. You wrote, please explain to me why it's right for the state to presume to define marriage a sacrament of the church while fighting to keep the government out of the church's business is wrong. Because if you remember, once they did this, they def- They actually violated the First Amendment by defining religion, by the creation of religion, by doing that. They actually violated the First Amendment. And I've been arguing every single state, every municipality has what they call civil unions. You go before a judge, you take out a license, and you become a domestic union, whether you're male, male, female, female. Every state can define how they, they define a civil union. But when you take it the step forward and use the word marriage, you are now talking about a religious ceremony. And now you're defining religion. Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. And you were spot on all along. I've been on your show before, and we've talked about this. When the church, and frankly, I would challenge my Protestant brothers and sisters, when we gave up the idea that, the, that marriage was a sacrament, And we left our Catholic brothers and sisters alone to defend that particular aspect of what it means to be sacramental in your faith, in your religion, in your Christianity. We started losing the battle at that point in time. But at least we could step forward right now and say we've got millions upon millions upon millions of Catholic brothers and sisters who consider marriage to be a sacrament of their faith. Who in the world thinks the church should breach that wall of separation of church and state, enter into the church, and start defining its sacraments? This is absurd. It is not a religious freedom. This is religious fascism. It's bigotry where they're presuming to tell you how to define your faith.
1: You know, is it going even to the point where, uh, I think this was about two years ago, a a Religious organization closed down their school because they demanded um, same-sex, what do you call it, unisex bathrooms, no longer allowing girls to go to the girls' room and boys' to the boys' room. But no, no, everyone goes to the same bathroom. They were demanding that even within the church that they had to have a unisex bathroom. I mean (laughs) – I mean, as soon as you walk in the front doors of my church, to the right-hand side is the restroom, and there's only one restroom, but that's because the building is just that small. But it, it only takes one person at a time, so only one gender can be there at a time. But instead, and these two issues, schools, that, Religious schools, oh, yeah. And these two issues that you and I are talking
4: about right now, these two issues you and I are talking about right now can be one. They're easily one. Because what are we arguing for right now? We're arguing for separation of church and state, for the church to stay, for the state to stay out of the business of the church. That's what the liberals have been telling us all along for the last 30, 40, 50 years, that there's supposed to be a wall separating us. And who, in their right mind, would want to suggest that the state should be empowered to define the sacraments of the church? We can win that one. And on the issue of restrooms for women, who in the world— wants to make the argument that a female is not a biological fact. How can you be a feminist and deny the biological fact of the female? You can't. You can't be a feminist if you deny the feminine. And you cannot be pro-woman if you tell real women they don't have the right to their own restroom, their own privacy, their own shower, their own sport, and their own scholarship. It's misogynistic for anyone to take that dignity away from a woman woman, and suggest that she's nothing but make-believe and pretend, like I said, a leprechaun and a unicorn. What an insult to the woman.
1: Absolutely. And I said this, when you're dead and buried, say a thousand years from now, and an archaeologist big, digs up your body and runs a DNA test, that DNA test is going to say you're a male or a female, that you were genetically born a man or a woman. It, it doesn't show. You may have the little extra pieces the silicone left over when you had your implants in there. And they said, well, I guess this person ended up being a transgender, but they still were born a boy. This was born a girl. And you can't change what God made you. All
4: right. So we've touched on the church being separate from the state. Check, check the box. We win that argument. We've touched upon being pro-woman and being a classical feminist. Check the box. We win that one. And now we're talking about whether or not it's, um, um, it is, it's a winning argument to engage in the public square in defense of females and the the biological facts of science. So they want to accuse us of being science deniers? Wait a second. I'm not denying biology. I'm not denying physiology. I'm not denying physics and genetics. I'm not the science denier. So if you want to truly be pro-science, let's talk about scientific facts.
1: I have to apologize. I've got some sort of a, a failure here, and i got a loud noise going on. So, Curtis, if you can pick up while I try to figure out what's going on over here.
2: <laughs> yes, Doctor. good to have you on board with us today. Can you hear me?
4: Um, just can you hear, as can you yes, hear me? You do so? Yeah. I can hear All you. Right. Yes. So,
2: with today's feminists, isn't it true that their ultimate goal is to um, be one like man?
4: With today's feminism? Was that the question?
2: Yes. That they want to um, completely do away with the sexes. You know, we're all the same.
4: Well, I would say, I don't know that the... How would I answer that? I I think it's a (laughs) denial. It's a denial of the human being. Um, not just a denial of man, it's a denial of woman. It's a denial of the Mago Day. Let me answer it that way. We are told in Genesis that we are created in the image of God. We are special within all of God's creations because we are the only ones that were imbued with his identity, his image. That's the thumbprint of God upon human beings. The radical feminist agenda The LGBTQ agenda, the gay and lesbian agenda, the postmodern agenda wants to dumb down the definition of the Imago day to the Imago dog. No longer are we in the image of God with moral awareness and culpability. We are now nothing but uh, but an animal. We're the Imago dog. We're made in the image of the animal where we have to be defined by our base instincts and our appetites and our inclinations, and we can do no other. What an insult to what it means to be human. Again, we win this argument because we're elevating what it means to be human rather than degrading it.
2: Well, isn't it, isn't it well, true also the that one, to... of the reasons, one of the reasons why the left wants to get rid of God is so they don't have to answer to God?
4: Oh, absolutely. It's the original sin. What was the original sin in the Garden of Eden? If you will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become what? As God. That was Satan's temptation to Eve. You won't need God any longer. You can decide what's good and evil. You can define what's right and wrong. You can decide. You can even define what's male and female. You can define marriage. You can define hate. You can define what's green and gay and left and right. You are as God. You can define everything. And that's exactly where we are in our culture today It's the living out of the original sin over and over again
1: well that's this is the thing that the left does so well. They depersonalize the human being you in like in Obamacare, you are a unit, you are not a person, but you are called a unit in Obamacare you know it is it is a fetus, but it's not a human baby inside there. Now they use other terms to describe that unborn child and by doing so they dehumanize it becomes an object instead of a human being capable of living breathing with a soul to think walk talk just like any other human being but if you dehumanize the way the nazis did that to the jews then it makes it easier to make you disposable and this is what they have done so well
4: absolutely and this is the flaw in the way we use acronyms today we talk about lgbtq and what we've done is we've labeled people with this alphabet soup of acronyms that ignores the fact that they are individuals created in the image of god and they're now defined by their appetites they're defined by their sexual inclinations because that's all they are it's an insult And we don't have to buy into that insult because the biblical worldview has the right definition. And hyphenating our identity. You know, saying that you're, um, uh, oh, I'll use this one, gay Christian. I think that's an oxymoron, quite frankly. But what an insult to define your Christianity by your propensity to sin. I don't define myself as a lying Christian. I don't define myself as a stealing Christian. I don't define myself as a wandering-eye Christian. Now, I may have a (laughs) proclivity and an appetite to do all of that, but I can choose not to because in my relationship with Christ, he is Lord, I am not, and I can control my instincts and appetites,
1: and in fact should. You know, it also brings around where people turn around and say, Christians are, are so bigoted. No, if you're a true Christian like you and I are, we also believe in redemption. So that, yes, we may have sinned, but if we, we realize it and we profess our sin and we come back to the teachings of Christ and we are redeemed, this is what we're about. We forgive. And, and they fail to understand that, and the left doesn't. And I don't understand why they, they want us to be tolerant when they are all themselves completely intolerant.
4: Well, it's because the tolerance agenda has been a ruse all along. They never really did want tolerance. They wanted power and control. And now that they have brainwashed everybody into believing in tolerance, they've shown their true cars that they want to be in control of what the definition of tolerance is and that they won't tolerate the intolerance of others, which is self-refuting at every turn. They're sawn off the branch upon which they sit. It makes no sense. And they know it. It's like, I, it's like if I were to say I hate hateful people well, I just identified myself in the very category that, which I hate. Or if I said I'm sure that nothing is sure. That's self-refuting. You can't be sure that nothing is sure. You can't, you can't say I'm absolutely confident. There are no absolutes. Again, it's a self-refuting claim, and the same is true for this tolerance agenda. You can't say I can't tolerate your intolerance. That makes you one of the things that you're criticizing, but that's, that's the stereotype. It's the poster child of the left right now.
1: That it is. That it is. Um, I wanted to move a little bit over because we touched shortly on abortion and the New York State law, which is hideous. And when I used to live in New York State, we fought for the law of personhood. So that if a mother was was pregnant, one was pregnant, and the child was injured or killed before it was born because of a crime, then that would be a separate charge for manslaughter or murder whatever Um, by this new new york state law they have nullified all of the personhood laws in new york state so now it's perfectly fine to commit a crime if your girlfriend is pregnant and you beat her up and she loses the baby you're not going to be charged because that new abortion law has nullified personhood was that the total purpose of this new law
4: Well, I think it's it's dumbing down the definition of what it means to be human. It's the same idea, it's the same problem of the LGBTQ hyphenated agenda, because you're insulting the dignity of the human being. And that's what abortion has been about all along. It's been about us wanting to define life rather than accepting God's definition of life. I've got news for you, living in what's dead. You don't define what life is or what isn't. God defines life. You don't, and I don't. And any time I want to rise up and take charge of that definition, I become a very dangerous human being. Pol Pot did it. Mao did it. Hitler did it. Mussolini did it. All the despots of history wanted to start defining what it meant to be an acceptable human being, and it didn't end well for millions of people. And we're actually at the point right now with the abortion debate where we've got an argument not only for partial birth abortion, but we've got academics like Peter Singer at Princeton, and then there's a professor at Oxford, and another one in Melbourne, Australia, that are all arguing for post-birth abortion, that it is acceptable to terminate the life of a baby after birth if the parents decide to do so.
1: Well, that was fully exposed with the, the Virginia attempt at that law, and once it came out, the outrage. So I'm thinking that this might be enough of a backlash to get personhood back onto the books. I know here in South Carolina, a friend of mine, Richard Cash, he's a state senator, has been trying to get personhood passed. And he's been working on that for a number of years. It might be enough for states like mine, South Carolina, to go red enough to get these personhoods passed. Well, I hope
4: so, because – the consequence of that terrible idea is now finally coming home to roost. It's not just hypothetical. It's not just academic lunacy. It's not just the talk of some crackpot uh, uh, philosopher at Princeton. This is real, and it's being expressed (laughs) by the governor of Virginia, that it's acceptable to terminate a human being after it's born. Now, logically, you know, frankly, logically, these people are making a lot of sense. Because if it's okay to kill this thing— 60 seconds before it's born why isn't it okay to kill it 60 seconds after it's born because nothing has changed it's just 120 seconds difference in age and it just moved a few feet so if you think it's okay to kill it here you can easily argue that it's okay to kill it there and that's exactly where the governor of virginia ended up going and it should appall all of us
1: Yeah, well, they're trying to pass the law also in Pennsylvania, and I pray that they don't, because if they do, it would be a perfect reason for Kermit Gosnell to appeal his conviction. Now, that's a scary thought now, isn't it?
4: Oh, absolutely. But unfortunately, a lot of people that are left of center in this discussion, they haven't informed themselves well enough to even understand who Kermit Gosnell is and what his atrocities were. They have the media ignored it. The media won't cover it. So how do you find out who he is, what he did, and why it's wrong? You have to find it out through listening to people like you. And un, and, and unless all of your colleagues out in the talk radio world keep beating this drum, that story is going to be lost.
1: Well, we had the executive producer for the Gosnell movie on uh, our last show. Uh, I've also had the people that wrote the book, uh, Phil uh, and Anne McAleer are on the show several times uh, while they were doing the movie and while they're writing the book and everything. So uh, we've been following the story the whole long time. But there is now a hunger, thankfully, a hunger out there for Christian-based movies. You're, we've been seeing it uh, time and time again with the release of Gosnell and the several other movies coming out, Revelations, uh, that has been coming out. So there is a hunger for this. And Hollywood has yet to recognize it, but there is a hunger for these independent films, and they're doing well.
4: And that's the hope we have. You know, you listen to a show like this, and you could it could be a downer. You know, that Piper guy, he keeps, I mean, he sounds awfully negative, sounds awfully fatalistic, sounds like the <laughs> battle's over. Um, but to that I say, no, I know the end of the story. And the end of the story is Christ's church will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, there are battles to be fought, and I don't know what my role is or is not in those battles other than just to be obedient. I may suffer, I may quote-unquote lose the battle, but the war is won by the church. We have that promise. And that's the end of the day that is encouraging to all of us, is to just know, you you know, Churchill, we have to be Churchillian rather than, uh, like chamberlain we've got to be willing to never give up never give up never give up never give up and be willing to run into the storm rather than away from it not to capitulate not compromise but to go in ready to fight the good fight because we know who wins
1: well as i always love to say and my pastor loves it because you overheard me say that i said don't worry don't get down because in the end in Revelation, it tells us we win in the end in the end, no matter Absolutely. what happens to us here on Earth, in the end, we win. So there will be salvation. And, and I keep in mind.
4: And you know what? It even puts you in a better place than Churchill, because stop and think of it. Churchill didn't know. He didn't know if he was going to win. Um, Wilberforce, he didn't know if he was going to win the battle against slavery. Um, many of the people in, our, in the American Revolution... Many of them died. They went into eternity not knowing what the end of the revolutionary war would be. We look back and we think it's all was a given. It wasn't a given at all. But the beauty of what you just said is we do know. We do know the end of the story. We're not going to be surprised by this. So whether we live or we die today, it doesn't make any difference as long as we're obedient and we fight because we know what the victory is.
1: Yeah, you know, it's people worry about the corporal body. They worry about what's happening here, right here, and now on earth, and to them, that's the center of their universe. Instead of looking outward, looking for something better, something mightier, something more glorious than what is immediately here, and if you live in the here and now, then you're not going to care about morals. You're going to do whatever feels good for you, which is why we have the situation we have, where there is a loss of morality, a loss of goodwill and there's a loss of happiness yeah and you know what
4: you you lose happiness when you have no purpose so let's reverse it here what is if, if you're hapless what are you you're listening to and fro you have no purpose happiness would be the opposite of haplessness so happiness is not just um physical joy and pleasure Happiness is purpose and dignity. It's the Imago Dei. You cannot be happy if you're not the Imago Dei, made in the image of God. You know, animals can experience physical pleasure. They can satiate their appetites, but do they experience the joy of what it means to be a human being? Absolutely not. When I drive through the cattle ranches of Oklahoma, I never see the cows having a good conversation on talk radio. They don't do that. They're cows. <laughs> They can't experience the joy and the happiness of a good debate, a good argument, a good conversation and relationship. They're cows. The imago Day, the image of God, can only – we're unique. We're the only ones who can pursue happiness.
2: Dr. Piper, i got well, a question for you. Please. You
1: mentioned cows. Well, I just want to make a point here. You mentioned cows, and I had to start cracking up because I want to say, Corey Booker, <clears throat> get your hands off my steak.
2: <laughs> anyway, ahead, in the in the black community we we have a lot of, you know, spiritual people, good Christian people, and they never seem to make the connection um with groups such as um the abortion, you know, um pro-choice group. And um they never make the connection between the the gay, lesbian group. And, you know, they look at these groups and they don't see the connection to the Democrat Party. And I think if we found ways to make that connection with these Christians, because everything that's going on out there runs contrary to what they're, you know, they're being spiritually taught. And we can make that connection. I think a lot of them will leave the Democrat Party.
4: Well, it's going to be... Any answer I give right now is going to be somewhat presumptuous because I don't want, you know, I, you know I, as, as a white guy in Oklahoma, it's a bit presumptuous of me to solve all the problems or pretend to be uh, the voice of the black community. But I am a human being, and so are you. So are my white brothers, and so are my black brothers. So as a human being, I think I can contribute to the conversation. I can say this. As human beings, we should desire freedom. We should desire liberty. And I'm guessing that everybody in your church and in your community would say amen. Well, where do we get that freedom? Where do we get that dignity and that liberty? We don't get it from government. We get it from God. Government never defines and gives us more freedom. Government always restricts it. That's the nature of government. It governs. God gives us the freedom and the liberty that we want to enjoy. And so what is the worldview that's going to give you the greatest measure of human freedom that you can get? And that's where I think we can win. And there are black leaders out there that are speaking like this, as you well know. Star Parker, Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, uh, Armstrong Williams. There are some black leaders that are speaking. And even the historical black leaders like Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington were on the same page with you. It's only the worship at the trough, the altar, this golden calf of government um, entitlement that has led to the African-American population, Stepping away from dignity and freedom and toward more government and control. At least that's my view. Now, you may say, nah, you missed the ball on that one, but that's what I see from the outside looking in.
1: You know, I have a friend of mine, uh Pastor Leon Wynn. He was trying to run for a seat that James her holds here. He happens to be a black pastor. And God bless this man. He came to one of our Tea Party conventions. He goes up there and he does his speech. And I'm standing there talking to him and his lovely wife afterwards. And one woman comes walking up to him, blonde hair, and she looks at him and she says, I didn't realize you were black. <laughs> he cracked up and says, oh, thank you for letting me know. But I asked him, and I asked her, I said, Pastor Wynne, you know, as a Christian, you have follow the very same values that we as conservatives have. The very same values that the Christian faith stands for is what conservatives stand for. So why aren't more black pastors preaching the Christian message, the conservative message? And he answered, "I honestly can't know." Answer, because too many of these people are either being bought off, or they're just doing it so they get people into the pews. They really don't care about tending to their, their ministry. They just care about more what goes into the plate. So you know it's a question about you know moral values of some of these pastors, why they don't lead them down a true Christian path.
4: Well, and I also think there's great power in groupthink. You know you, you, you see groupthink, groupthink in small small little corporations, churches and whatnot, where everybody just follows the leader and they do so blindly. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of the Pied Piper. It's the story of the Israel, <laughs> Israelites out of Egypt. Everybody starts following the negative. And it isn't until somebody has the courage to step forward and say, wait a second, the emperor has no clothes. He's naked. Then all of a sudden, everybody starts listening to that person. I see it in Star Parker. I see it in Candace Owens. Candace Owens right now is a rock star. People are starting to listen to this person. She's in her late 20s, and she's got the courage to say, wait a second, we've been fed a lie, and there is no freedom in this agenda. You know, at Oklahoma Wesleyan, on this this issue— I have been very forthright in saying, we are a university. We are not a diversity. And there's a reason for it, because we put first things first. We we teach and we preach unity, unity of veritas. We are a university. We are not a diversity. We don't focus on division. We don't focus on differences. We focus on unity. And you may say, well, oh, that sounds... That sounds less than being fully multicultural. Well, you know what? We have over 40% of our student population, um, quantitatively minorities. We beat almost every other college and university. And we beat them by focusing on first things, unity, and not getting distracted by second things, diversity. Diversity isn't bad, but it's an outcome. And if it becomes the goal it's the second thing that spoils the first thing, rather than it being an outcome from the higher good of unity. You
1: know, it, it's funny because uh, a friend of mine, Lloyd Marcus, uh, who is also another outspoken person for the black community, uh, he has a favorite saying. He's an unhyphenated American. He's an American first, and then whatever his heritage is secondary. And we would, used to be called a melting pot. And in a melting pot, everything blends in and lasts forever. We have away from that. And as I've heard this explained, we've become a salad bowl. And what happens to a salad after a few days? It rottens. It goes bad. It doesn't last. And we've stepped away from the thinking of us as one nation under God. Instead, they, they set us apart. Uh, I'm sorry, you're white, you're black, you're orange, you're purple, you're gay, you're straight. If they divide us, they keep us fighting. But once we recognize what they're doing and unite, as you say, as in university, they lose the fight. We've got to be back to the yeah. unhyphenated American.
4: Absolutely. And again, this is the higher good. Who's going to argue with us and say, well, we don't stand for unity? So it's a, it's a winning argument. We put ourselves in the position of authority in the higher moral ground by taking a stand for freedom for liberty for human dignity for women for uh, classical feminism for classical liberalism i'm a classical liberal so are you you're a classical liberal because classical liberalism if you want to go back a thousand years to oxford which is the cradle of the liberal arts university classical liberalism was to teach people what it mean to, meant to be a free man and a free woman, a free people, a free church, a free country, and a free culture—it was an education in liberty. So reclaim the high ground of these, of these, um, of the definition of these words that matter, and don't balkanize people, don't insult them by dividing them. Call upon them to be unified as the Imago Dei and not hyphenated into some balkanized culture that's going to be demanding its pound of flesh and demanding its, um, its. Uh, its rights and its privileges because they're being selfish rather than unified you know it we're called e pluribus unum not e unum pluribus for a reason it's out of many one unity it's not out of one many and that's the flaw in the politically correct diversity agenda it's many it's not one
1: yeah and you see people like a AOC, I could never pronounce her name, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, when I hear her screaming, it's for the people. You know, instead of uniting a nation, she's out there dividing it and pushing her socialist message. good example is this failed deal in uh, Manhattan, uh, not actually Manhattan, Long Island City, of Amazon. And I was listening to the news this morning, and they're talking about the deal that fell through mainly because of her big mouth. And I'm thinking to myself, you had possibly salaries ranging between 100 to $150,000. And I looked at my husband and I said, hmm, how much revenue did New York City just lose? Because if you work in New York City, any of the five boroughs, and you live outside of the city, you still pay taxes into New York City. Whether you live inside the city or out, you work there, you pay taxes to the city. Uh, trust me, I did it for a number of years. And I sat down and I did a quick calculation and I estimated with deductions and so forth, maybe you're paying taxes on about maybe 90000 end result. And I did a quick calculation. What they threw away, if they had 25,000 uh, jobs, as they predicted, would have been $87.5 million per year. That is yeah. an unbelievable a- revenue stream. And they were going to give them something like a $3 billion tax break over 10 years. The tax revenues you would have gotten on just those 25000 and they said maybe as high as 50000 employees. That revenue stream would have paid for the tax break you just gave them for the next 10 years. Not even thinking about the collateral income that would have come from the area, too.
4: Ocasio-Cortez is a perfect example of feelings over facts. The facts don't matter to her. It's all about feelings. It's all about her personal feelings and her opinions. She doesn't care about the science of economics. She doesn't care about the science of biology. She doesn't care about the science of, of uh, debits and credits and math. She doesn't care. It's feelings over facts. And whenever you let feelings govern and facts be damned, at the end of the day, people are going to lose. And that's exactly what you see in this Amazon story. And, you know, the, the irony of it is the Democrats, I mean, look at what the Democrats have said no to over the last couple weeks. They've said no to capitalism. They've said no to babies. They've said no to Bibles. They've said no to guns. They've said no to walls. They've said no to... uh, What else have they said no to? They've said no to... um, uh, Basically, women having their own bathrooms. The Democratic Party is the party of no. You can't have your bathroom. You can't have your Bible. You can't have your guns. You can't have... Your God. You can't have anything within the Democratic Party anymore. You can't have Amazon. You can't have your job. The party is becoming the party of no rather than the party of yes. And, again, I'm going to go back. I think the winning argument is to stand for something rather than against everybody's freedom all the time.
1: Well, don't forget airplanes. No to airplanes. Now. Yeah, you can't have an airplane. So you're going to have to take that train can't to night <laughs> The woman is nuts.
4: You can't have an airplane. You can't have an airport. You can't fly. You can't get gas. You can't get a car. Again, I go. You go through this litany of things that you can't do if she were to run the world. And the and the frightening part about it is she was seriously proposing that within twelve years this would become America.
3: Oh no! no oh. I mean,
1: twelve years. Twelve years. The world's going to end. She had to have all this oh, done in yeah. ten years to prevent the world from ending in twelve years.
4: Oh yeah. It, and that's going to work, right? While we're doing all this draconian stuff, I'm sure China and Russia and everybody else is going to do this. And by the way, what happens to our national defense? How are you going to? <coughs> excuse me. How are you going to fuel uh, aircraft cal- carriers and fighter bombers with uh, solar energy? I'm just curious. How do you get that done? I don't think it works that way. And when you're driving your electric car, Miss Ocasio Cortez, where do you think the electricity comes from? There's a power plant out there. It's probably (laughs) powered by either coal, natural gas, or fuel oil, or maybe nuclear. It's giving you the electricity that you claim to be all high and mighty about driving your electric car. These electric cars are such a a boondoggle because you've got to plug them in to get electricity, and the electricity isn't coming out of thin air. It's not coming from a windmill. It's coming from a power source that uses the the, the energy that
1: she wants to make illegal either clean coal, uh, nuclear, uh, hydro, electric. But it, what's even funnier is people always say, oh, we've got to stop drilling for oil. We've got to stop doing that. But they don't realize the petrochemicals that are also the side products. And I, I dare anyone to name one thing that doesn't require petrochemicals. From the pencil you're yeah, writing, like it, this- to the lipstick, to the deodorant, to the sheets, to your clothing to the wiring, to the seat, and everything else that went in to make that electric car, you still need petrochemicals. And how many people are going to tell that no more petrochemicals, what's going to happen to that smart device? They're not going to be able to make it. You need
4: this. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have your cell phone. Again, it's the party of no. No cell phones, no cars, no boats, no planes, no airports. I mean, I, I think that up there in New York, y'all, you, you're even talking about we can't have soda pop. I mean, what? You can't have fireworks. It's the party of no. No liberty. You just have to do what we're told. Follow along like a bunch of obedient lemmings and do what we're told. And again, back to the question of the black community, the black community of all communities should rise up and say, we're tired of doing what we're told. We want freedom.
1: You know, that's the whole thing. They want us to worship at the nanny state of government. Take away our God mm-hmm. and guns, and then we're forced to worship at the nanny state. Because this new Green Deal was also going to be paying people who don't want to work. So it doesn't matter. If you don't feel like working, that's okay. We'll still pay you to exist instead of allowing for oh, personal responsibility. <laughs> that's gonna That's
4: going to work really well at the end of the day, isn't it? <laughs> so you you're gonna, oh, that, you're gonna get we already your have that
1: it's called welfare yeah,
4: yeah and didn't we already have that it was called the soviet union didn't we have that it was called communist uh it, it was called communist cuba didn't we already have that in the in the revolution in mao's china didn't we have that in pol pot's killing fields of cambodia i mean we've tried this stuff before so you know what? Uh, what was it? George Saniana said, "If you don't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat them over and over again." Ocasio Cortez might want to go read a little history.
1: Can she read? but she's got this pie in the sky. Go ahead, Curtis.
2: Uh, I say, can indeed. she read?
3: <laughs> I'm not sure
2: if she I can don't read. <laughs> Most of them yeah. can't even cursive write.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, if, you, if you take away a person's responsibility and you don't make them responsible for their actions then they're going to use any and every excuse to do whatever they feel they want to do and once we put personal responsibility back you have a much more gentler society you'll see a decrease in crime you'll see a, an increase in education an increase in the economy but with a lack of morality and if anything goes then we end up With uh, My word just went completely out of my head. Um, Lawlessness.
4: Well, you know, um, G.K. Chesterton has a great uh, quote. He says, when you get rid of the big laws of God, you do not get liberty. You get thousands and thousands of little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum. And that's a perfect uh, summary of what we've been talking about. When we refuse, as a people, to live by ten simple laws, that's all God gave us, ten. Ten simple laws. And then Jesus, he actually narrowed it down to two. We refuse to live by ten or even two simple laws. And what do we get to replace those? Thousands upon thousands of little laws created in Washington, D.C. that rush in to fill the vacuum down to the point where they're telling us how to use the bathroom. And now they're suggesting they're going to tell us what we can't drive cars, we can't get in airplanes, we won't have airports. We're not going to have any natural gas any longer to fuel our houses and heat our stoves. We're going to have to go back to what? I guess using <laughs> dried cow dung and firewood to try to keep warm. But they'll probably make that illegal, too, because of the carbon footprint. Bottom line, at the end of the day, they're like Eric Pianca, the professor at the University of Texas, who won the Texas Academy of Science Award a few years ago. And his, in his acceptance speech, he actually said, the world is in trouble, the earth is dying, and we need a percent." Ninety percent. Let me repeat that. Ninety nine zero percent reduction in the human race if we're going to save the earth. Now, how do you propose we accomplish that, Dr. Pianca? And you know what he said? Well, the Ebola virus might do it. This is a terrible worldview that degrades the human being, treats the human being as being no of no moral significance over and above a virus. And that if we got rid of the problem organism, human beings, and the Ebola virus wins in that process, that's okay. And the earth would be better for it. At the bottom line, at the end of the day, that's what Ocasio-Cortez is saying. Now, she won't admit it, but it's the same worldview. She's going to come to the same logical conclusions because happiness is not their goal. Haplessness will result in people being controlled and them having them, their thumb on them them holding them in bondage and slavery to the state. Haplessness is their goal, not happiness.
2: Dr. Piper, well, isn't it? isn't this Agenda it, um,
1: 21 or whatever the now agenda is called that the U.N. has? The U.N. already has this as a policy to reduce the human population, and they've been moving towards that. It, it, it's something that they've said openly time and time again, and yet we fail to listen. Go ahead, Curtis.
2: Yeah, I was was saying, isn't it true that um, those on the left have um, a goal of breaking down our system, you know, and make null and void our Constitution so they can refashion, you know, this country that was supposedly founded, you know, in shame and on the backs of, um, you know, those who were oppressed? Isn't that their goal, to rewrite and realign America in, in the way that they they so fit to see?
4: Well, I think they've said it. Uh, quote from Barack Obama in his campaign speeches of 2008 and his acceptance speech. He said, I'm going to fundamentally change America. What did he mean? He's going to change the fundamentals. He's going to go to the foundation, and he's going to tear that foundation, not just tear the walls down, but he's going to go to the fundamentals, the foundation of America, and tear that out and rebuild it. And what's the foundation of America? The foundation of America is our motto, and God we trust. It's our seminal documents, we the people. It's government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's not government. It's not people for the government. It's government for the people. The foundation of America did not need to and does not need to be destroyed. But Barack Obama said that he was going to fundamentally change america and then he had the audacity and i use it's his word he had the audacity to say this and this was one of the most frightening quotes i think we've ever heard out of a president he said this we are the ones we've been waiting for and we are the change we seek
3: that is frightening
4: that's frightening because frankly you aren't the one i'm waiting for and you aren't the change I seek, and I'm not the one you're waiting for, and I'm not the change you seek. Whenever we give that kind of power to people or a person, it's called despotism. It's called an oligarchy. It's not a constitutional republic any longer. It is something that is preying on the average citizen by imposing power. When he said we are the ones we've been waiting for and we are the change we seek, it should have sent a chill down everybody's spine because of the authority and the power and the arrogance that was behind that claim.
1: And no one really listened. And I kept on screaming when Sean Hannity was doing the Stop Hillary. I'm saying, Hillary would be better than Obama. You don't know what you're pushing. But we ended up with Hillary running against, and we ended up with Obama in the office. But we've got to listen to what people are saying and take them at their word. Dr. Piper, it has been a pleasure to have you with us. I had been hoping to have Dr. Alvita King call in. Something must have happened that sidetracked her, but I do have my next guest also up in the the ballpen here. And you know you're welcome all the time, and keep up the good work, Dr. Piper. It is always so fun to talk with you.
4: All right, blessings. Bye-bye.
1: Take care. Dr. Everett Piper, you can find him by going to his website, which is Oklahoma Wesleyan University, just by typing in his name, Everett everettpiper.com. Let's bring our next victim up in on the line here, first-time guest to the show, uh, former law enforcement officer, uh, Sergeant Mike McGrew. Good afternoon, Sergeant Mike.
5: Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Hello, Sergeant Mike.
1: Oh, it is our. Pleasure. Hi, Hi can you hear me? it is our pleasure. Yep. And um,
3: okay.
1: I wanted to let you know I'm also retired law enforcement, but I came out of the real police department, NYPD. Just a little dig. Oh, okay. There you go.
5: Well, thank you for thank you for your service right. there.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. But I didn't do thirty years like you did. Um, you have a new you have a book out which depicts your biography as a police officer and what you've gone through in your life. Uh, I'm fortunate. I did not get the book in time to read it prior to the interview, but I was reading some of the pieces that were pushed up on the internet and you've got a very, very interesting story uh, which has led you to a great place. The name of the book is called a higher duty to call. Um, and as I said, you are a 30 year veteran and I found it interesting the little segment that was published uh, on the internet about your first day as a rookie. Uh, you and the sergeant you were driving with—very uh, interesting situation you found yourself in.
5: Yeah, it, the the book. The book covers a lot of things and and uh i i think it starts off uh starts off with a couple of uh different things but one of one of the one of the things that it starts off was was uh was an incident where i i actually won uh or i was awarded the the medal of valor and uh there was a uh, a guy that had uh ingested some drugs on state street which is the main street down on uh, downtown santa barbara. And he uh, uh, smashed a window uh, on a Sunday afternoon when there was a bunch of tourists out. And uh, he smashed a a window of a a pawn store and he took a samurai sword out and he started to attack citizens who were uh, shopping along the the crowded uh, street. And so I got the call and it came out just as a... um, window smash and the vandalism so when my partner and i got there uh, we were confronted with this person who was uh, basically attacking people with a samurai sword and uh, uh as you, you i can go into the story further but if you pick the book up it it just talks about the um the confrontation that we had with this man and 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 basically having to put ourselves in harm's way to to keep him from uh attacking the the people that were in the cars and on the roadway and uh, this, uh, a, a large crowd gathered and started to follow us and, and, uh, was chanting to, to shoot the man. And, and, and we didn't because there was a, there was a crossfire situation, but at one point, um, a patrol car came down and, and, um, and hit him, at uh, full speed. I could hear the four, the four barrels of the car coming down because I was wondering how we were going to get this guy in custody. And, and so the, the car hit him and knocked him up in the air. He came down and, and um, came down with the sword. And uh, to my surprise, he came back up and started swinging at us again. But uh, we were able to uh, pull out our mace. And at, at that time, if you remember back in the day when we had mace instead of pepper spray, uh started uh, to get enough mace on the guy and... Um, uh, it was effective enough to to get in and, and, and we were able to tackle them and bring them down but but it's just one of uh quite a few stories that were in there and and it's got a few cop stories that are in there uh, like that but um uh but really for me uh the book came out not just for uh, police stories it, it it came out because of uh, a lot of what you're talking about on your show, just about how God is working in this world and in our lives and and um, just the the powerful things that are happening. And, and God really worked in my life in a powerful way. And he did it. So he did it through uh, the police force. And, and I wasn't a believer for the first 20 years of my career. So um, I'd worked a lot of... Um, a lot of um, high-profile cases. Um, I was a patrol officer for a while. and um, Then I went into the detective bureau. And I was a detective. I worked major crimes as a detector, So we did homicide and robbery and sex crimes. And, and um, I did that for uh, probably about half my career. And I got promoted in that spot. Uh, then I was a sergeant of that detail. So I supervised it. But I saw a lot of... Um, a lot of um, just, um, heartbreaking things that you know as a cop um, that uh, really affect you, and affect us. And uh, so I talked about the role that, uh, yeah, go ahead. That that the
1: um, well, it's funny because response. you know, yeah. Well, people people put cops under a microscope, and what I found compelling when I was reading well, some of the stories that were printed that. Uh, People don't realize the split second decision, what goes through your mind when you're about ready to do I pull the trigger, don't I? The hesitation. And that hesitation can cost a life. And yet after the incident occurs, then comes all the second guessing. Well, did that cop do that because they're racist? Did that cop do the job according to what the rules and regulations are? And the second guessing is really what Takes a huge toll on the individual involved.
5: Yeah, it does, and you know, just the trauma of the events themselves. So, you know, the the, the event that I just briefly covered, um, you know, there there was a lot of things that happened. You know, your your body goes into to uh, just um, things happen that you can't explain. Uh, during the process, when when that was going on with the samurai sword guy, my uh, everything went in slow motion, and you know, I, I couldn't explain it. It was the weirdest thing, and and I I could see everything in slow motion. I could think everything very clearly. I I, I didn't know what was happening, but later on, I realized that it was my brain went into uh, hyperspeed, and it was just a defense that my body was doing. And uh, but when you come out of those situations, there's another reaction that happens, and there's a a post-traumatic stress thing that happens as well. Um, But, yeah, some of the the situations are very split-second, and and you make the call. And, you know, I I think, and you know, being a cop, that um, when you get to those places that I've had uh, several uh, situations where I could have killed somebody, and I didn't, because it, it, it came down to a millisecond. Where we didn't pull the trigger, and there's thousands and thousands of those episodes that happen every day throughout the country, and and you don't see that on TV, you don't see that on the media. Um, they might just you know, get a video of something that that um, they put on that uh, isn't favorable to the cops, and and may not even be you know from an angle that can justify what happens sometimes but um, but uh, but I have to say that you know having done this job and having been with the people that I work with who are just people of such courage and character um i I've always been impressed with uh, all the situations that I, that I've been in and, and just the outcomes of them and and just knowing that life matters um, it doesn't matter whose life it is it's we, we go in, and, and I've been um, positions to, you know, we were protecting, uh, you know, a, a somebody who I've arrested before, and I have stood in harm's way for that person, or or somebody who's tried to hurt me before. But you know, we, it doesn't matter. We, we show up at the doorstep. You know, we don't we don't get somebody's <laughs> bio before we show up. We we show up, and we're there to help them, and, and we do
1: every single time. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, um, I had arrested someone, the guy came at me with a knife, and you know, a knife will go straight through a bulletproof vest. It's meant to stop bullets, not knives. And I had two other cops standing with me when he went swinging at me. And they were ready to shoot, I was ready to pull the trigger, but the last split second, I saw him drop the knife, and he didn't stab me. And I put him under arrest. When I got him into the precinct, to a person, they said, you should have shot him. And I said, I couldn't, because I saw him drop it. I went home, I had the next two days off, I actually shook for two days, realizing I came so close to taking someone's life. And yet, I probably would have been justified, but I know in my heart and my mind that I saw him drop the knife. So I can't justify it to myself. How do I justify it to anyone else? How do I justify it to God, is exactly what happens. And. When I got back to work two days later, there was a message waiting for me from the family of the man I locked up. And they said, thank you. My father is with us tonight because you did your job. Because they knew. Yeah. They even said you should, you could have shot him. You know, so God has a way of working through us whether or not we recognize it or not. And I have told the story where I was guarding a pregnant woman inside a hospital. She was about ready to give birth. She was a junkie, screaming, ranting, raving mad. And the women that were paying to be at the hospital to deliver their baby were having to endure this wild woman. And I walked up to her. I cursed her up one side and down the other. I ran into her a few years later. I did not recognize her. She recognized me. She says, officer, not only did you save my life, but look at my healthy baby. I'm off the drugs. I've got a job. And I've got a beautiful baby. You never know how what you do, how you interact affects people down the road. And that's the job a cop has to do.
5: Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, and it's beautiful when you see that because uh, the rewards are not, people don't run up and and thank you all the time, but when you do get those few and far between thank yous, it's just so meaningful. And that's, and that's what keeps you coming back. You know, as as a cop, you see, you see the worst of the worst of, but, you always see something very powerful, so no matter what how tragic an, an event can be, there will be something powerful And for twenty years, I didn't know what that was. It was the thing that always kept me coming back um, and as a as a sergeant, it was the thing that i I told the the folks that worked for me to, to look for and and uh, then later on, when I became a believer. Um, I knew it was God's grace. I knew it was God's presence. I, I could see the strength in, in a victim. I could see a community come around um, somebody that was in need. I could see communities come together around a tragic event or a disaster, and it was just. But that's God's. That's God's grace. It's it's happening in in the hearts of people, and, it, and it's just so beautiful to see. And as a and as a believer, um, after I came to the Lord, and what happened for me was. Um, i uh you know i i had a I had, I had quite a career um and and I, I came to a point where uh my youngest son who was twelve years old he got diagnosed with bone cancer and uh he lost his leg immediately he had to take his leg because of a tumor and he had to go through some uh chemotherapy some really uh, extensive chemotherapy we spent about two hundred days a year in the hospital. And um, so all of a sudden I was in a place where I, I, you know, I went from this person who was supposed to be in control and and everything to I was in a place where I had no control. And then um, about the same time while we were in that fight, my, uh, my other son had three children, but my older son uh, got involved in, in uh, drugs. And so there was a drug addiction in the family that we were battling and um uh and then through you know law enforcement there's a lot of through the post-traumatic stress things that you talk about when you when you go home and your body's shaking for two days and then the next thing you know six months later there's anxiety attacks or whatever they can be you know there's there's things that come out in marriages and so i had lost two marriages so i was in this place of uh of being at a pretty low place in my life and um it was there that uh, that God spoke to me, and, and it turned my life around. And I got to see His grace. I got to see His restoration. I got to see uh, His strength, and just it was His guidance that got me through so much. And uh, my my younger son died um, a couple of years later, uh, but God had prepared me. Yeah, uh, I, I couldn't have done it without Him. Um, but but I also got to see from that point on my, the job change for me. And as you're speaking about how you you know it's God, I I knew it was God every single time I went to a call. And uh, after my son died, my younger son died. I, I didn't want to. Uh, I told God, I said, I don't I don't want to go to another dead kid call. I don't want to go to tell another family that they lost a family member. Um, and uh, when I came back to work, that was all the calls that I was getting. I was getting these calls for one after another, but I realized that um, you know now is that cop standing on the doorstep, and I was there for that family, and you know I my heart was just like broken wide open, and and they could see right into it, and 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 I knew why I was there. Because they could look at me and they could say, "Why, why are you still standing?" And all I could do was just point up and say, "Because of him, you know, because of our Lord." And then I, I was able to well, it, a witness to them.
1: Yeah. Well, you and know, um, as a cop, you see two different sides. You have the ones that don't believe and the ones that do have strong faith. Now, I was fortunate that I've never lost my faith. I've lost my faith in the church itself, but not. Faith in God. So I've always had that to carry along with me, which helped me through. But people don't realize as a cop, you get home, your family doesn't want to hear what happened to you at work. Here you've got all this stuff buried up and pent into you. You need to talk to someone. And yet there's that stigmatism that the cop doesn't reach out for help for someone to talk to. But you were lucky, I believe it was your brother-in-law that helped guide you along the way and help bring you into your faith. So ha- you were able to have someone to talk to, but the idea of going to seek counseling or something like that, getting you put onto the rubber gun squad, you know, the stigmatism that will go into your record, whether or not you'll get promotions down the road, that all plays into the stress that you go through while you're on the job, and you endured that for 30 years, and yet I do believe you said you ended up becoming a um, chaplain for the department.
5: Yeah. yeah. So what, what happened was we, uh, we started, got phenomenally hard to program. It was called daddy's program that we started out over here. And, um, and this hand has been on it. It's, it's really, it's getting blessed. And, uh, what, what we did was, um, uh, you know, I thought about why don't, why, why, why is it that cops aren't getting the help that they need? You know, it, it is that stigma. It is, um, you know, if you if you need to get help, you have to go to your boss and say, hey, boss, I'm, I'm having a meltdown. And then the first thing they say is, well, that's nice. Give me your badge and your gun and go sit over there. And then you wonder if you're ever going to get your job back. So that's why people don't get that help. But what we were able to come up with was a program that um, that's funded through, and it's here in Santa Barbara. It's the Santa Barbara Police Foundation Fund. It's, it's a nonprofit, completely not related to the uh, city or the government or anything else it's all privately funded and um the uh uh, through donors we've been able to get first responders counseling and there's a, a private number that they can call and it doesn't go on the record it doesn't do anything other than they call that number and they get assigned to a trauma trained therapist that can help them out and and then uh it's it's worked, it's confidential, it's trusted now and the conversation's changing. So you know, when I came in uh on the department there was a lot of Vietnam vets that were the senior officers and I think Vietnam vets paid a, a big price for post traumatic stress injuries because um, you know, now you see the Afghanistan uh, veterans coming out, Iraq veterans and and they they will talk about uh, post-traumatic stress injuries, and, and they will talk about you know, the effect of it and getting help. And so it's more open than it was back when I first came on with the department, back when we Vietnam vets were, were dealing with it. Um, and so that conversation is changing, and my prayer is that what we're doing here in Santa Barbara, and it's growing, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, I and mean, it's starting to grow uh, through the state now. Um, and, we've, and my prayers that it grows through the country, that it changes the face of what, uh, how first responders, both police, fire, DAs and uh, even emergency room uh, nurses and doctors and everybody that, you know, paramedics that, that deal with that kind of um, stress, uh, that they can realize hey, these, these things do affect you and you know, give her some signs and symptoms and it's okay to just go deal with that and and, and be healthy through it Because there, it is and, and part of what I do in that program too Is because I, uh, I was ordained Just before I uh, retired But um, I'm part of the spiritual uh, Care part of that too So there is a secular part of it And there is a, a spiritual care Part that, that I do with it. But I also uh, Still do some shopping stuff In the department
1: you yeah, with us, at the time I was in there, this was the mid-80s, early 90s, um, number one, women were not really enforced at that time. I think it was not even 10% of the police department had women, and most of them were not mm-hmm. on patrol. And when I went, showed up for roll call the first day, and they started to pair me up with a guy, one of old timers, the old timer turned around and said, I will never work with a woman you know that's that's what i had to endure but to go with these vietnam vets who have already gone through the trauma of war and now oh. having war on the streets it, it is i can understand it because i did work with some vietnam vets um,
5: <clears throat>
1: people don't understand what you go through day to day you know you strap on that uniform never knowing if you're going to make it home and i lost my first marriage because of being on the job You know, he didn't want to hear. He didn't want to talk. He didn't want to know what was going on. And this was a Marine that didn't want to find out what his wife was doing. My second husband, God bless him. You know, the phone would ring and goes, all right, what'd she do now? How'd she get hurt this time? And he would show up and be at my side. So, you know, night and day. And who you're married to is a big difference because your current wife has been a tremendous help to you in your spiritual journey.
5: Yes, yes, she has. She she actually was, <laughs> she was the our first date was the reason I was found. So I, <laughs> I went to a concert just to go out on a date with her, and, and it was a, it was a Christian worship, uh, uh, concert, and it was there that uh, a pastor came out and spoke and just really. He nailed me and uh, knew my life story, and I was sitting amongst five thousand other people, and that happened. And I said, "Wow, this, there's something here." So that was the day that everything changed. And, and yes, my wife has just been a blessing and just really helped me through, helped me to grow in the Lord. She walked me to the Lord, and then um, and then she's just you know been there for me uh, in this in this job and this this career in the last decade of it, and and there's just been so many opportunities to uh just to to police in a different way too you know for me it it was it was a way to to um you know i was still still you still deal with the bad guys and 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 put them in jail and everything else but there was still another another way to even minister with some pretty tough characters that i'd dealt with in, in the past and and some of those, some of those folks, I'm still, you know, they're coming back to me right now, and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, ministering to to some of those guys as well. So it's been it's been an interesting, uh, been an interesting um, uh, journey, and, and I'm really grateful for it. But but uh, you know, I talk a lot um, about that in the book too. Just just in the last years of just the divine appointments that God puts us on. Um, out in the streets and, and the things that happened and uh, just you know I was a motorcycle cop for a while and uh, you know there was a time where I I when I was I'd pull people over I I could hardly ever write a ticket because uh, people that I'd pulled over were uh, just experiencing something in their lives that I knew you know, God had set that moment up uh, for that contact where the person to maybe come back from the doctor and realize they had, you know, the doctor told him they had just been diagnosed with cancer. And then I, then I pulled them over right afterward. and they, they were just, they, the, the, the floodgates of the territory were, were going on. And I'd say, well, this isn't about the, the, the ticket, what's going on. And they'd tell me. And I'd have a, a, te- a, just part of my testimony would be able to speak to them and Next thing you know I'd be on the side of the road, um asking them if they wanted to pray and they and they would and and there'd be a prayer right there on the side of the road that brought them right to the lord and and you knew that that was just God being there for that person at that time, and they knew it too Because when I walked away I'd say well <laughs> if you if you, you want to know if God's with you, ask yourself why yeah, is the it. motorcycle cops praying to get to the side of the road, you know. <laughs> Try <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> being yeah.
3: of Brooklyn and pulling them over. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. Um, but but it was just, you know, it was just so I, many sweet moments.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you there's so, there's so certain ones like, that you remember more than others. And I had pulled over a woman, she was a teacher, she was racing to to go to work. And I said, all right, fine. I, I normally didn't ticket teachers, UPS drivers, and stuff like that. Yeah, I got soft heart at times. Otherwise, you piss me off and you're going to get it every which way I can. Mm-hmm. But, you know, here I pulled her over. She turns red. Why would you pull me over? Because I'm black? And I says, no, because you just ran the red light. Is, is there something wrong? Are you in a rush to go somewhere? She goes, yeah, I'm late. I'm a teacher down at the school. So I go to hand her back her driver's license and registration, and she's refusing to take it. So I said, that's it. I I said, I'm not going to write you a ticket. Uh, You're late. You're already late. I don't want you to get any more trouble. Go ahead. She's refusing to take her paperwork back. So I finally tossed it in the window. And this woman was built. And if you know what I mean, built. So the driver's license landed on the right side and the uh, registration landed on the left side. And they're sitting on her chest. I walk away. Do you know I got a civilian complaint from her because I didn't write her a ticket? She complained that I disrespected her, and when I went to um the civilian board for the trial, you know what they told me next time, write her the ticket. Here I was being nice, and these are things that you remember trying to be as nice as you can it doesn't always work though
5: yeah but i i don't uh, uh I don't think that for for me i I never, I was never sorry. I was nice to somebody. <laughs> I, I would, I would walk away, and yeah, you, you, you did, you did at times, you know, give somebody some grace, and and they would just come back and attack you. But you never know what happens in in that person's heart later on, right? You know, it's because they're they're acting in a in a in a place where they're having an angry outburst, and you know, it may not have been about. Getting pulled over for them at that time, they're, they're they're exploding about something else, and I think sometimes there's people that have that have, uh, and I'm sure it probably happened to you as well. But you know, they they came back and they wanted to to talk to me because they were apologetic for the way they treated me on a traffic stop, or and a lot of times, especially with DUI arrests, you know, you, you would arrest somebody on a DUI arrest and um, run them through the uh, field sobriety tests and people, you know, and they're drinking, they're it's they're a different person sometimes and, and uh they can be nasty, real nasty. And you arrest them and take them to jail and then the next thing you know, um maybe at the trial or maybe at, you know even weeks later that I'm just you know, apologize to me or the officers I was with, um, for their behavior, you know, because they just they just thought about that moment. So you hope maybe that's a growing moment for them. You hope that, that that's something that, that, that they can walk away with. But yeah, it doesn't feel good. It never does feel good when you do something nice to somebody. You they don't, they don't appreciate it. But that that's just, the, that's the, <laughs> as you well know, that's, that, that job is not an easy job. And that's why we, that's just another part of the, the, I think that's an underlying trauma that happens too. Or um, for the for the people out there, the first responders, I, I really appreciate you dedicating the show at the start to the, the to the men and women who protect this country and the, to the first responders because it's um, you know they go through so much and so many unseen things. You know, there's so many unseen things that happen that uh, people will never realize, and um, they they don't understand. Yeah, you know what, these people do wonderful things and sometimes they get spit on. <laughs> sometimes they get, you know, they'll yeah. they'll give something a break and they get a personnel complaint, you know. They're like a no win situation for them and then they're going home, you know, going, Why, you know, why am I even doing this? You know. But, well, but you know, you go back and Yeah. But you go back and you do it because you know you're doing the right thing, you know, and you're you're open yeah. that um mm-hmm. That, that everybody else does, yeah. and you know that you know that out of the ten percent that are yelling and screaming, that the ninety percent that are being quiet, you know, are there for you. <laughs> they just don't always tell you that. I think. I hope that.
1: Makes yeah, that's true. Fine. That is true. <laughs> you know, I've always said being a cop is maybe ten percent of actual law enforcement, but then ninety percent of being a shrink. You know, you basically are, are talking to people every single day, helping them work out problems. You get a call for a domestic dispute, and you get there and end up helping them to work out the situation or separating them or whatever. You know, you do more psychiatric work or, or social work, you can say, than you do actually law enforcement. And people don't understand that. And that mental stress alone takes a huge toll on, on cops. And if you have oh, yeah. the Lord with you, and you believe in the Lord, you go know, I don't say always, but you usually can expect a good outcome.
5: Yeah. Well, at least you got some place to to, to bring it to, you know. You got because God says that His His burden is light, His, his yoke is easy, you know. And so, so the enemy wants to put those burdens on us, you know. You so those. When we go there and, and we see, you know, we we go into the most chaotic situations there can be sometimes. And sometimes you you realize that that sometimes our job is to walk into the most chaotic. You know, it could be a traffic collision where everything is just, you know, people are bleeding and hurt and screaming and running around and chaos, and 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 you get there and you're the person, you know, and everybody's looking right at you, and you know, so you're putting doing first aid or before the ambulances get there or whatever it may be, but, but just start giving orders and telling people to do things. And, and you start to bring peace to that chaos, you know, the same thing in a bar fight or the same thing in a domestic dispute or whatever it might be. But Sergeant Mike. Um, um, yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, this is um, co-host. So yes. Yeah, I was wondering because there seemed to be a a lack of respect and regard for our men and women in blue by young people today, and I'm not sure if it's a lack of um, training at home, you know, to respect, you know, older people and and you know our people in authority, uh, authority, and um, whether or not you know they they were taught you know, spiritually, you know, to um, re- regard life. And I was wondering, you know, in your years as a law enforcement um, personnel, did you guys go into the school? You know, we used to have what we call officer-friendly programs where, you know, law enforcement personnel would come and, and talk to children in school and and, you know, interact with
5: them. Are there still programs yeah. out there like that? Yeah, and I think they're increasing. I I know that uh in our area we have a police activities league that's really um uh really impactful and, and I play a part in that too as well sometimes. Uh and and we deal with um kids that um, uh there's at risk kids and some kids that are not at risk, you know. Um but uh we, we give opportunities to have that interaction um you know we, we try to involve ourselves in the community as much as we can the one thing that happens um with police it's hard it's a hard thing to do because you can go into a place where the mindset can be you know hey i'm dealing with criminals all day I'm, you know coming back and forth and getting beat up all the time and then all of a sudden you just can isolate yourself but um you know i think uh, through the community policing movement that happened back in the nineties. Uh, and it's really, it's really catching on right now. Uh, even more so. Is, that was is that you know, when involved. Yeah. Yeah. But the more you, the more you see, and for us, we, actually Santa Barbara was kind of, we were, we were in the forefront of a lot of that stuff back, back in the, probably the early nineties. Uh, but you know, yeah. And it was there was there was actually some resistance because it was a change in the way we were doing business, you know, because it was like, well, what are we doing? And, but uh, but it, but the value of it was that you start to interact with the community and just be a part of it. Right. Instead of just be responding to the problems. And and when you do that and you immerse yourself into the children's programs and the kids, the teenage programs and those kind of things, you know, they see you for who you are, that you're just a regular person. And it helps us. You know, I feel like it helps me because it, cause it, it, it makes you, as a cop, when I was a cop, it just made you realize that, yeah, you know what? uh the, the the community is good. It's not just cops and bad guys, you know, there's this other ninety percent of really wonderful people <laughs> and you get to have that interaction and that um that partnership that starts to develop. So so I feel like um uh that there is headway in that. Uh you know, and I can just speak from that, just from our from our the area that I policed in. Um I know that every area is different, you know, and there's probably room for improvement uh in, in all kinds of areas but uh but i I do see that 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 improved over the thirty years that I was there that we became more uh accessible to the kids and to the community and it and it went from just being the baseball coach or the football coach to more of a you know a, a philosophy of the police department too. Not to mention that they still are uh, baseball coaches and football coaches. Because cops are special; they, they want to be. They 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 got into the job because they wanted to help the community, and they still and they still have that on their heart. Although sometimes it can just get a little um, lost at
1: times. Yeah, well, in, in, in NYPD we had what we called CPOP, which is the community policing, and the UC pop cops did exactly the same thing that you're talking about, working also with PAL they would come in also on their days off to work with PAL. Uh, we do have a comment in the chat room that I will disagree with, Vorp, uh, because I worked with a lot of cops that once at one point were in the military, and they made excellent cops. Uh, yes, the training is different, and yet in a lot of ways it's very, very similar, because the police department is a paramilitary organization. Um, so I worked with a lot of good former military. And even – cops that were still in reserves I worked with. Uh, So, yes, they do make good cops, mainly because they already have the discipline that someone that has no military background has to learn when they enter the police academy. Did you find that also, Sergeant Mike?
5: Yeah, we have a lot of military in the police uh, department. Uh, And, yeah, they were excellent. We loved getting people that were in the military, and a lot of them were trained for that, and they, they did do very well to this day. You know, there's some of the best um cops that I worked with uh were in the military, especially uh, towards the so in the Iraq, uh, Afghanistan era. You'd the the uh oral boards when you'd sit down and talk to people on the oral board that were becoming new um, police officers and you'd ask them, you know, tell us a problem that you solved you know, it went from well, I had a problem with my roommate, you know, during times where there was no war to To times where you've got people coming out of combat that say, well, you know, let me tell you about the time that, you know, my company commander was killed and then I had to take over the unit. And so, you know, you had some life experience that just like, wham, all of a sudden, you know, you had some folks that had been through some real tough stuff and they were battle trained um, uh, and and you knew that they would be uh, doing well under, under pressure, under fire, because when you're out in the streets, that's the other thing too, is that, um, you know, you know, cops are under uh, situations that are extremely dangerous, and, uh, and you do have to be able to act um, uh, in the face of danger. I mean, some really horrific you know, circumstances. You got to be able to 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 keep your keep it cool and keep your head and straight. So, yes, you know, our military. Yeah, are but... you know, I, I love I love our military. I love our veterans, and I'm so grateful for them and what they do.
1: Yeah, because. A lot of the ones that were you know, either military reservists or retired military, just whatever, that became police officers, they were more cool under pressure, less likely to be trigger-happy, whereas you got this young kid right. that didn't even go to college. and Those are the ones that you, know, right. you had to watch, and you had to make sure that yeah. when they went through training, they paid attention. You know, I had the benefit yeah. of I went in at a later age. I had already owned a business. I had managed several businesses. Um, I had traveled the world, so I went in as a mature adult, not a kid out of school. Um, so, again, I had a different way of looking at it, probably closer to the way the military person looked at it, a little bit more calm, a little bit cooler. But this is what we need. Um, we need the police that are coming into the today's environment to have at least some military service or a college degree. By then, they're more mature, not the kids that I went to the academy with. I was at least ten years older than some of them, but it's a hard job to do, and you did it with thirty years seeing this day in and day out and Now you work as a minister and you you work with the community again, so you're doing a fantastic job. People can find you on your website, which is your name. Sergeant SGT, Sergeant Mike McGrew, which I have a link up on the show page that people can click on and go to your website, learn more about you, and get your book, which is A Higher Call to Duty.
5: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, welcome in to, to check it out. and You know, I uh, did this book to to be able to help other people. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it it's something that can bring hope to folks going through um, some tough and difficult times, you know, because that's, that's our, our, our testimony is everybody's got one. Everybody's got a powerful testimony, and, and this is just my testimony. And the reason that I, I did this, it was, I gave it uh, publicly here one time at a, at a big uh, prayer breakfast event, and some folks asked me to, to put it down on the book. And said that it would touch uh, some people. It was uh, important that it could you know, touch more people, and so that's why I did it—to to spread it out and just to be there for 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 somebody else. And so I—I I, I just, you know, my prayer is that it blesses um, some people in a, in a special way and, and helps them get through maybe a difficult time, or, or helps them to to uh, help a friend out, or or just uh, give them hope in the situation. You know, so that's. That's what it's all about, and we're here for each other. And uh, you know, so I just want to just put put open my story up, and, and hope that it, that, it, that it helps somebody. So that's that's what it's there for. So I welcome everybody to pick it up and take a look.
1: Yeah, and what people don't realize that it's not cops versus them. We're all human beings. We're all creatures of God. And if we go into a situation realizing that, we're there to help. We're not there to hurt or harm. We're there to help you. And then when you start to explain that to someone, all of a sudden you start to see the change in the personality. It's like, I'm here to help you. I'm not here to cause you harm. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to help you. And as you realize, hey, this person has a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a parent, a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle. They're just the same as you. And when I broke in new partners, I'd always explain it to them, they're just the same as you treat them the same way you want to be treated, and that's what made you a good cop
5: yeah, and and that's um that's just it's something that i i'm open, I'm hoping that this book does too. It'll give people an insight into that to say, "Hey, because when people read it, they go, "Oh wow," you know I think it, it touches them in a in a place that they go, "Wow, you know what? these are people." And it is a difficult job, and you know it's just gonna bring that um you know that profession and the community together in, in, in a stronger way to to support both sides so that's that's another prayer that I have as well so i'm i'm just uh, I'm excited about it you know i'm really- grateful to be on this show too, and to be able to talk about these issues as well because it's um uh, they're important issues, and, and as you well know. I, I know that I'm, I can hear it in your heart <laughs> um, that uh, <laughs> these things went deep. And uh,
1: Well, and, um, and I'm, and I good. just want to make one yeah, observation yeah. before I let you go, because I've got my next victim up in the bullpen here. Um sure. If people uh, – I, I was almost brought to tears the other day. Uh, I had to go up to just outside of Charleston for a doctor's visit, and on the way home I was starving. And my husband pulled into a Hardee's. And as I'm walking into Hardee's restaurant, there was a big sign on the door. And it said 10% discount to active retired military. And I said, oh, that's nice. And then as I'm opening the door, I look a little further down, as well as first responders, including police, firefighters, emergency services. And that was the first time I retired 26 years ago. First time I ever saw that. And it made me stop. So I walked into Hardee's, I ordered my food, and just on a whim, I said I pulled out my ID, and I just quietly handed it to the girl at the cashier. The next thing I know, she's got the manager, the manager helping her put the discount in, and almost the whole staff is coming over to tell me thank you. I never had that happen before. So people at Hardee's, thank you. And I sent a email over to the president of Hardee's, thanking them and giving them the name and the uh, uh, cashier number of the person that waited on me. I never had that before. Can you imagine how much more we can get a good relationship between the police and the public if we had more people like that, parties? That was absolutely yeah, amazing. Yeah,
5: beautiful. Yeah, that, that's very special. That's very cool. Very cool.
1: Well, Sergeant Mike, I want to... I want to thank you for joining us. People can find you at com, and they can pick up your book, A Higher Call to Duty. Thank you, and God bless for all the hard work you do, sir.
5: And God bless you. Thank you so much.
1: All right, I got a little something special for our next guest here. Uh, so I want to get this all pulled up, and if I can get the right mouse in my hand, and bring along Clint Johnson. And before we say hi to Clint Johnson, I've got this for him.
3: Anybody in the audience who's got a birthday today, happy birthday to you.
1: Hey, Clint Johnson. Welcome aboard to Sunday. I thought today. I was at wood here for a minute. <laughs> Thank you very much, <laughs> Ann. Appreciate it. I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. How are you today?
6: Well do I well I have a cold, so if I sound like a scratchy voice, it's because I do, so
1: but otherwise I'm feeling okay. Yeah. Um you are the author of a book of, called uh Good Lord, why do I, why would I always mess this up? Tin Cans and Greyhounds, the Destroyers that Won Two World Wars. Um, and i got to let you know, my co-host is a retired Navy guy uh, from Desert Storm. And it's a fascinating book and a history that I wasn't aware of. Some of it I was, some of it I wasn't. But I also want to let you know that when we started off the show, which we do with a dedication to a fallen hero, I took one of the heroes out of the book, um, Lieutenant J.G. Stanton Frederick cock I thought his story was extraordinary. What made you write this book? Well,
6: I've been a Civil War writer for, for many years, and I wanted to get out of that genre. So I started looking around for, for something in, in more recent times, and I stumbled across the stories of the, the first story of the uh, USS Jacob Jones, on uh, which uh, Stanton Calk was the officer of the deck, and it was the only destroyer, only warship lost, U.S. warship lost in World War One. It was torpedoed off the southern coast of England in December 6, 1917. Note, note the date, one day before Pearl Harbor in 1941. And then uh, when the, that Jacob Jones went down, they just gave the name to the next destroyer in line to be built. So the second Jacob Jones uh, was, was built uh, a couple years later. And it was the only destroyer lost or the only warship lost off the coast of the United States during World War II uh, off of Cape May, New Jersey, in 19, uh, February 28, 1942. So I was struck by the similarities of both Jacob Jones going down, both sunk by U-boats, two different wars. Both lost most of their crews. Both lost men to their own depth charges exploding. So I looked at it and thought about this, the the coincidences were striking, but I realized there just wasn't enough to do a a book on just the coincidences. So I expanded it to look at the whole history of destroyers. I looked around, and no one had done a comprehensive history, general history of destroyers, and no one had, had looked at and compared the destroyers between the United States, Great Britain, Germany, and Japan, the four major combatants. And so that gave me enough material to and enough of a, of a market to write the book. But Stanton Calk was the officer of the deck on the first Jacob Jones, DD 61, and he saw the torpedo coming in, but he 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 couldn't move the ship in time to get out of the way of the torpedo. But he uh, survived. He was in the water and he helped the men on the rafts stabilize themselves. So if there were too many men on one raft, he would get a couple of them and move them to another raft, trying to keep them all afloat. And this was in December off the coast of England, so the water was very cold. And he literally died of exhaustion doing his duty uh, to save the, the, the crew. And so once the the uh, Navy Cross was developed or, or created, he was one of the first recipients of that. I, th- I think he probably should have been given a, a Medal of Honor, but he wasn't. So he died a very young man, I think 21 years old, something like that, uh, just not too far out of the U.S. Naval Academy. So he was a a true naval hero.
1: Yeah, and I had to really hunt to find additional information on him, uh, which took me about two days of digging through the Internet web pages. There wasn't a lot of information. and. From what you wrote, I was able to put together the dedication uh, with a, a letter that someone had written about knowing him and being on board ship with him. Uh, so it was very interesting, and it is a great book because you, you show how it starts off with these these vessels that they wanted to fire torpedoes, um, rather crude vessels, and how it emerged into the today's fighting machine. Right, the the torpedo
6: was developed in 1866 by the British, uh, that uh, John uh, John, uh, or Robert Whitehead developed the torpedo, and then once he developed it, you needed a way to deliver it. So they started putting it on small boats, and so they call those the torpedo boats. And then the Navy said, well, we need something to sink those torpedo boats, and so they came up with a torpedo boat destroyer, and then they. They said, "Well, we really need a, a ship that will go overseas." The torpedo boats and their torpedo boat destroyers only operated very close to shore. So, the torpedo boats started getting larger, and they just decided they they dropped the name uh, torpedo boat and started calling them destroyers. And so, by the turn of the, the uh, century, 1900, they they were, became a full-fledged fighting vessel. Uh, the Japanese really proved their value in the. the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, uh, when the Russian fleet was almost totally destroyed off the coast of Korea, largely with the help of of torpedo boats built by Great Britain and sold to Japan, and then Japan also copied them. Uh, But the Japanese used their own torpedo designs, and uh, the Japanese have always been the the best torpedo designers and manufacturers uh, in the world, as as our Navy certainly discovered in World War II, because uh, their torpedoes were much better than ours. Ours were were defective during the first half of the war, and the Japanese Type 93 torpedo was the the very best of of all of the warring nations. So by the by the the ter- World War One, the destroyer was pretty much established fighting vessel, and then by World War Two, the Americans finally caught up. The Americans started out behind on on torpedo boat design. We we our, our torpedo dis- or torpedo boats were lousy, and <laughs> put it in a good term, in the Spanish-American War of 1898. And we kind of caught up a little bit in World War One. We started developing really good destroyers in the 1930s. And then we developed the very best destroyer to come along was the Fletcher class, which started uh, being deployed in the fall of 1942. So we really started out behind and caught up and then led the way uh, in the second year of the war, World War
1: II. Yeah, man, you covered a, the first page of my notes. I've got 10 pages of notes here. Okay.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but you you have the USS Winslow that actually uh, took action in May 11, 1898 uh, in the harbor in Cuba. Uh, but, she never fired a torpedo. She just ended up becoming a training ship. So when was it when Americans actually started using the torpedo? Because it looks like, you know, it was a while before we actually fired any. You know, it was,
6: it was the, the torpedo's history is kind of interesting. They developed it. It became a much feared weapon. But the first time it was actually used in combat was like in 1891 in the Chilean Civil War when they, uh, the Chile. Chile government sank an old uh, warship that was being used by the rebels, but they fired it from a range of 50 yards. As, as I write in the book, it was like the uh, naval equivalent of hitting the broadside of a barn. <laughs> they fired it from 50 yards, and, and, and it finally hit the ship, and it went down. But that was 17 years after the tor- torpedo had been developed. Uh, in the War of 1898, Spanish-American War, the Winslow, our torpedo boat, performed very poorly. It got shot up by a, a British-made uh, torpedo boat that was being used by the, the Spanish rebels, the Cuban rebels. And it pretty much shot up. The Winslow Winslow never got off a shot. And we lost one of our... Our Worth Bagley was the only naval officer killed in the Spanish-American War, and he was killed by shells fired from that Fjord. The was that was the name of the Spanish boat. So... The Americans looked at our R. The Winslow and said we got to do better. They started redesigning it, making it larger, making it better armed. And so by 1901 or 1902, actually, we finally came up with our first true destroyer, which was the, the USS Bainbridge, uh, DD-1, which was the first designated destroyer. Before they were just called torpedo boats or or TBDs, torpedo boat destroyers. And the Brainbridge was uh, four-stacked, burned coal. But oddly enough, uh, the American taxpayers paid for it, but it spent almost all of its life in the Philippines and, and off of Malta in the Mediterranean Ocean. It never was stationed here in the United States. So even in 1901, though, we were still behind the designs of what uh, France was doing, what Japan was doing, what Great Britain was doing. So it wasn't really until... Uh, around the, the, the First World War that we started catching up and, and designing torpe- or tor- destroyers that could compete with these other nations.
1: Now, the Japanese, as you said, was way ahead of everyone else. And in the war between Japan and Russia, uh, you write about the first time being um, encountered that the Russians were so ticked off, they put the, their fleet, into the, the Baltic fleet, into the water, and sailed 18,000 miles around the world to confront the Japanese. And here, the Japanese used new technology—a wireless radio. Tell us about this story.
6: Well, uh, the, well Japan and Russia both wanted to uh, carve up Korea and in, in Manchuria, and the Japanese kept offering, we'll, "We'll give you this part of the, that part of the East, and if you'll take that." Well, Russia said, well, you're just tiny little Japan, we're the mighty Russia, we're not going to deal with you at all. And so the uh, Japanese finally attacked them at the Battle of Port Arthur uh, in China, uh, Korea. And they, uh, they did some damage to the Russian fleet, did not do a great deal of damage. Well, the Russians said, well, we'll come over there and teach you guys a lesson, or, or as the Russians called them, you little monkeys, is the way they referred to the Japanese. So they put their fleet sailed around 18,000 miles from the Baltic Sea. They got around to off the coast of Korea, uh, and the Japanese were just sitting there waiting for them. And the, they, the Russians were, according to international law, were, their hospital ships were lighted so that they would not be mistaken for warships. Well, the Japanese could see where their hospital ships were, so they knew where the Russian fleet was. So they just kind of lay in wait for the Russian fleet to show up. And then they used wireless radio that Marconi had invented to keep track of them. And then when they got to where they wanted them, they attacked them with uh, torpedo boats and some uh, uh, destroyers and cruisers, or excuse me, some battleships and cruisers, and essentially just decimated the Russian fleet. And it was the first time all of the great Western powers, Great Britain and France and Russia, had just not counted on the Japanese because the Japanese had been a closed society just 60 years before when Matthew Perry opened them up in the 1850s. We didn't know, really know anything about Japan, so we would never thought that they would ever ca- catch up to uh, the, the Western powers. But in the War of 18, 1904, 1905, they certainly learned differently. And so the Japanese became a, a, a overnight almost a recognized naval power and so starting really from 1905, the United States started paying attention to Japan, saying, we're going to have to fight these people at some point. 1920, we actually went on record at congressional committees saying, at some point, United States and Japan are going to go to war in the Pacific. It's just a matter of time. So it's, it's, you know, we think of the Japanese surprising us at Pearl Harbor in 1941. No, both of us had been looking at each other for, for 20 to 30 years Saying at some point we're going to be fighting each other so it's 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 interesting how history slowly but surely comes to a head and and that the predictions came right 1920, tw- 21 years later we did have the uh, the fight at or or the attack at
1: Pearl harbor wow. well in, in uh, was it uh nineteen o seven to nineteen o nine Teddy Roosevelt as president realized what the threat was, and he created the great white fleet. And he used that to show American power. How did he do that?
6: Well, uh, the, the Great White Fleet was all heavy battleships and cruisers. And what he wanted to prove to the Japanese and, and to the Russians and to the rest of the world was that the United States had finally created its own fleet. Up to this time, Great Britain had r- ruled the waves. Britannia rules the waves, was what everybody believed. So Teddy Roosevelt uh, built these battleships and he took them on a grand tour. Uh, throughout the the Far East. Now we didn't have any destroyers that could go that far, so they essentially went on their own, battleships and cruisers, and he kind of hoped that that the Japanese would not attack us. There was that that fear that he could get over there and get ambushed, just like the Russians had done. But we did have uh, destroyers in the Philippines. Uh, that was where the Bainbridge was, and another oh, about dozen destroyers that we had. They were cruising around the Philippines. To protect the Philippines and, uh, and the Hawaiian Islands from attacks by from the Japanese, so it's, it's early as 1903 and 4 and 5, uh, we were waiting for something to happen. But had the Japanese really come that way, there's no way our destroyers would have been enough to ha- have protected us from them. And oddly enough, when World War One came along, Japan became our ally and we actually cruised side-by-side with the Japanese uh, off Malta in the Mediterranean uh, hunting U-boats and escorting convoys. So all those old destroyers we had in the Philippines were transferred to the Mediterranean, and some Japanese uh, ships came in, destroyers, and they actually... They were charged for protecting the Hawaiian Islands. So think about how ironic that was, that the Japanese, when they were our allies, were protecting our interests in the Philippines and Hawaii, and 20 20 years later they were going to be attacking those same
1: islands. Well, It's funny because these uh, destroyers also played a pivotal role in the San Francisco earthquake.
6: Yes. uh, uh, Even in peacetime, there were two destroyers that were stationed uh, in San Francisco when the great earthquake happened in 1905 and the sailors were thrown out of the bunks because of the, the under, because of the earthquake created the heavy waves right there in San Francisco Harbor. So these, the the, the captains of the crews mustered all of his men and sent them into the city to help fight fires and, and control looting and everything. So the U S Navy, uh, was doing disaster relief. I, I don't know if that was the first time we'd ever done any disaster relief, but uh, that was one of the the uh, jobs of the destroyers right away was to try and, and save what they could of, of uh, San Francisco, and they did a pretty good
1: job of it. Now, I always find it funny because you have certain people that weave themselves throughout history in your book, and Admiral Nimitz is one of them. And didn't he run?
3: One of
6: them aground
7: when
1: he was an ensign. Yes, that's it. one of the, the, the
6: funnier stories of, of, of Nimitz. Was he was given charge of uh, the Decatur, and when he got there, he he was an ensign, and he got this order from an admiral he'd never met to say, "I want you to take charge of the Decatur." When an ensign to be in charge of a destroyer was kind of unusual, uh, so he he, he said, "What?" Well, why am i getting this sort of promotion and he shows up and the decatur was in terrible shape the previous captain had done nothing to uh to discipline the crew when he first backed it out he discovered that the engine telegraph which is the thing you see on in the movies where they it's a big round thing where you pull the handle and it tells the engine room full speed ahead or or full back or what whatever it might be that had been hooked up in reverse so when he put one quarter forward, he actually was ringing down one quarter backward, so he had to fix that. Well, he was cruising around uh, the uh, Philippines, which is south of Manila one day, just kind of glanced around at all of the landmarks uh, without taking real reading as to where he was, and he ran his destroyer aground. Well, rather than, than doing anything about it, he said, well, the tide's going to be in in 12 hours, he set up a cot and went to sleep. And he said, my grandfather always <laughs> told me if there's something that uh, that I can't do anything about, then don't worry about it. And so he just waited for the water uh, for the tide to come back in, and the destroyer uh, refloated. He wrote up a report saying, "Yep, I screwed up. I ran it to ground." And the the Navy issued him a reprimand and put it in his file. But they also promoted him. And I've seen several reports now to say if a Navy uh, captain of a destroyer had done that today, his career would be over because he, he, he absolutely screwed up. He did not know where he was. But they saw something in Nimitz that they liked, that, that the higher ups, his his higher uh, uh, general or admiral saw something they liked. So they decided not to destroy his career. And he later became the architect for, for winning World War II uh, or, or winning World War II in the Pacific as uh, in the Navy and uh so there was a, there was a uh uh admiral fletcher was also he commanded the Bainbridge and he taught his men how to swim, and nobody had ever really their commanding officers had never paid any much attention to him so and uh, his his officer one of his uh uh second in command said that the officers here before Fletcher arrived were slovenly and drunks, and he whipped them into shape. And so you saw that how far away these men were in the Philippines. They had just gotten lax in their command. But these two or three men that would later become famous in World War II really whipped them into shape and they, they got them back to being uh, top notch crews. But it was uh, Nimitz's career could have ended right then and we never would have heard of Chester Nimitz. But had someone not recognized that this young man
1: had leadership capabilities. Now, World War I was Woodrow Wilson, and Woodrow Wilson had declared neutrality for the United States, and the war is going on, and he's just sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, until he finally did the Big Navy Act. He, what was going on with Woodrow Wilson? Well,
6: the, the United States as a whole, in, in 1914, 1915, we Remember, this is this is before Lindbergh had flown, and so we were 4,000 miles away from Europe, so we were we declared ourselves free of Europe. So uh, in the minds of most Americans, in the minds of our presidential administration, now if you guys want to get, fight each other and, and have treaties with each other over there, that's your business. Why is it going to be concerning the United States? I mean, after a while, we fought two wars with Great Britain. And the United States admirals and generals really said, you know what? Well, we might fight a third war with Great Britain. So they really thought about, said, are we going to fight Great Britain or are we going to fight Germany if this this war becomes even more dangerous? So uh, even 1915 when the Lusitania was sunk, 215 Americans went down on that. uh, And the United States still, no, that's not enough for us to get involved. Uh, But then the Germans – seeing a lot of supplies coming from the United States, and so they declared unrestricted warfare. So they essentially said, if we see an American ship and it's carrying supplies to Great Britain, we're going to sink it. And so Wilson was essentially forced to go to war against Germany because of Germany said, we're going to be attacking all shipping that's heading towards England. So he had to turn around. He had to turn around from being an isolationist to to being somebody engaged in the war. And to his credit, he did pass this big Navy Act, which resulted in a a, a massive destroyer building binge. And most of those destroyers did not make it to Europe uh, by the end of the war because they were just simply, the war was over so quickly. The United States was in it for barely a year and a half. But a lot of those destroyers were built, and they did not cancel them, so they went into mothballs, and many of them were uh, reused and refurbished in World War II. And as I write in the book, those, some of those destroyers really became very key to, to World War II. We gave 50 of them to Great Britain, uh, and so they were used to, to uh, patrol convoys and do various missions. We converted uh, well over 100 of them into fast attack transports, which were like destroyers that could deliver Marines. Uh, to shore and then also protect them with their guns. We converted some to mine layers, some to mine sweepers, and some to seaplane tenders. Uh, We took out a couple of boilers on some of these World War I destroyers and put in tanks that held 50,000 gallons of aviation uh, gasoline. So we could send out these seaplanes to keep watch where the Japanese were, and they could find their their, uh, essentially destroyer tanker and refuel and go out and look for them again so i make the case that these old what we would consider obsolete world war one destroyers that were ordered to be built by the pacifist Woodrow, <coughs> excuse me by the pacifist woodrow wilson turned out to be very key factors in in world war Two. so it is a, a, a strange thing about wilson that he he said i'm going to keep america out of the war but then once once the war came he really passed this legislation and pushed it. Uh, He went from being, we don't want to have anything to do with the war to where I want to have the most powerful Navy in the world. And he really developed it. And and so uh, the the Navy that we have today, you can trace back to Woodrow Wilson making that promise. And it's it's always, it's kind of a strange transformation, I guess, for a president that Wood, Wilson just did not want to have anything to do with war. And then he built what became the, the most powerful Navy in the world.
1: Well, no, there's a character that keeps on coming up in your book, Captain Rose. He was a German U-boat captain, and he sailed directly into a U.S. port. That, that, I, I found that story absolutely amazing, the fact that he had the hood to do <laughs> yeah. it and what he did and how he got away with it. Yeah, you
6: know, if uh, I had not heard about Captain Rose either until starting to do my research. In October of 1916, this is uh, uh, let's see, what, 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 six months before the United States entered the war. We entered the war in April of 1917. Uh, Rose, uh, U-boat 53, crossed the Atlantic Ocean and cruises into Newport, Rhode Island. Unannounced. He just got a you know, try, driving a U-boat into the most important port in the United States. It's the home of the U.S. War College and home to 17 destroyers. He just kind of cruises in the port and says, hey, uh, hi, I'm visiting. You don't mind, do you? And he ties up, and everybody just kind of staring at him. (laughs) I said, who are you? What are you doing here? And he ties up and says, well, I've got a letter. Can you send this to the ambassador in Washington? And uh, so so the commander of the base comes down and says, are are you wanting to intern yourself for the war? And he says, no, I'm just here for a visit. And so they actually throw a party on his his, uh, U-boat. Uh, American officers go in, look at his diesel engines, and then they get word from Washington that, that says, get the U-boat out of Newport, Rhode Island, now. And so he was there for about 10 hours, I think, 10 to 12 hours. So he, you know, okay, if you don't want me, I'll leave. And so he turned around and left, and he wrote in a post-war account says everybody was waving at us and all of the boat whistles were, were going off and the Navy commanders were waving their caps at us. The next day, he started sinking British shipping off the coast of Nantucket Island. And we sent all 17 destroyers out there, but he wasn't breaking any international laws. He was in international waters. There was no rule, no law, saying he could not uh, sink shipping that was carrying war material. So he would stop tankers and ocean liners and board them and say, and look to see if they were carrying war material to England, they were fair game. let some of them go because they were just passenger ships and not doing anything. All our destroyers could do was sit there and watch. Rose made sure everybody had lifeboats, everybody got in the lifeboat. Then he sank seven ships in the course of 12 hours, used up all of his his, uh, torpedoes, and all of our destroyers could do was just watch. Well, this, this, and he went back to England. He became the fifth most successful uh, U-boat commander during the war. Now, now. The ironic thing was, was he was the fella that sank the Jacob Jones December 6, 1917. One of the f- captains of one of the destroyers that was watching him was what was the captain of the Jacob Jones the next year. So these captains saw each other in October of 1916, then December of 1917. And the interesting thing is, was the captain of the Jacob Jones was the brother of Worth Bagley, the fellow who had been killed on the Winslow in the War of 1898. And he survived the war. Uh, David Bagley survived survived the sinking. He became an admiral in World War II. So, you know, it's just yeah, it's fascinating easy. just to see that that this Hans Road, Hans, the only warship Hans Rose ever sank was the Jacob Jones in 1917. Everything else he sank was a tanker, but he tried to get his his. Cruise, uh, the cruise he was trying to sink, he tried to get him off. And whenever he sank the Jacob Jones, he actually sent a wireless message to uh, Queenstown, Ireland, where the, the Jacob Jones was, saying, "You might want to send a rescue ship to these coordinates because I've just sank a destroyer there." So think about that. This, this is when this is when war was still gentlemanly.
2: Clint, yes. look, what is um, what is your assessment of? today's Navy and its readiness compared to um, where we were, you know, just before Pearl Harbor got attacked?
6: Well, I'm not really an expert on that. Uh, I would, you know, I would guess that with all the technology, we are probably would know what our enemy is going to do before they before actually, we would get attacked. Now, the, the, certainly the, the ships, what the destroyers are called destroyers today, they bear no resemblance to destroyers the, of, of World War One and World War Two. I mean, we don't do onshore bombardment anymore. We don't torpedo from destroyers. We don't drop depth charges from destroyers. So the, the ship class is entirely different. But I think the technology allows our Navy men and women now, destroyer men and women, to at least get a good idea of, of what the enemy might be doing uh, and before they, and I can't say before they would do it, but we would we would know it pretty quickly. Now nobody can sneak up on a navy ship anymore. There there's one thing, I guess one way to put it. Uh, back in the days of ra- radar, you know, you, you you could get within 20 miles of a navy ship before you could spot them, uh, and so the distances, I guess, have become much greater uh, where you could be pr- protecting yourself. I guess, in, in one sense.
1: But a lot of innovations came out of you know, these destroyers. Uh, you talk about um, the hydrostatic pistol uh, and then the development of sonar, radar, and everything else. Uh, this, is, this is all because of the wartime vessels.
6: Right. Uh, war, war creates technology. When, when the submarine, when the U-boat came along and the Germans developed the U-boat, The only thing that that the only defense you could do for it was see its uh, periscope and then try and ram it before it got too deep. Well, the the British said let's try let's try sinking them by dropping explosives on them. So they developed this hydrostatic pistol, or it was essentially it would uh, it was a explosive device that would go off uh, once it reached a certain water depth water pressure. And it put that into the, a can of TNT. That became the depth charge. And so they developed the depth charge, but they hadn't really—they developed the depth charge so quickly they didn't have a way to deliver it other than put it on the back of a destroyer. But the destroyers had not been designed to carry a depth charge weighed 300 pounds. So if you could imagine loading a hundred of them on on the back of your destroyer when your destroyer hasn't been designed to carry that kind of weight. I found several accounts where captains of destroyers, particularly British destroyers, they were the first ones to use them, are scared to death. They wanted to, they wanted to dump them as quickly as they could because they were, became so top-heavy. They were said, in heavy seas, we almost swamped from carrying these depth charges. Well, later in World War II, they developed what they called a hedgehog, which was kind of like a mortar, kind of like, if you can imagine... 24 mortar-like charges exploding in a semicircle going towards the front of your destroyer. They would enter the water. Their advantage was that they did not explode unless they hit all of a submarine. So if you fired all 24 of them, none of them exploded, you'd miss the submarine. So you got with your sonar operator. He says, oh, there he is. He's, He's 100 yards or 1,500 yards off to our starboard. So you cruise over that way, fire another 24, if one of those uh, hedgehogs exploded, then you know you'd hit the hull, and it was a much more effective, uh, <coughs> much more effective because you, then you would know that you've hit it. You would never know if you if you hit a destroyer or uh, hit a submarine with a depth charge because it exploded whether it hit it or not. And so it was only if uh, diesel oil came up that you knew that you had hit the submarine or they might have released diesel fuel just, just in order to fool you, to make you think that you'd sunk it. So the Hedgehog was, was not very well, known. I did not know about it until I started researching, but it was the most effective weapon that the British developed that, that they shared with us to start sinking uh, enemy submarines. There was a USS England a destroyer escort in the Pacific that sank six Japanese submarines in 12 days. They were so good at it the crew of the England began to feel guilty that they were killing these Japanese sailors. And the captain of the of the England told his crewman, he says, This is our job. The sooner that we get rip, we end the war then the sooner we all can go home. Yes, we're killing fellow seamen, but they're trying to kill us. And so he had to allay his crew's uh guilt that they were so good at their job. Uh, but uh, it was it was an interesting case for the England. Just think of that six Japanese submarines in twelve days. That's a that's a record that's never been equaled by any other uh, ship in the U.S. Navy or or any navy that I'm aware of.
3: Go ahead.
2: How much do you know about the the British uh, and American? I'm sorry, Anne.
3: Go ahead, Curtis. Go ahead.
2: How much do you know about the British and um, American codebreakers working together to um, break the the codes for the Japanese?
6: Well, uh, I'm not sure that they worked together. I don't know if the British worked with the Americans on breaking the Japanese codes. Uh, If they did, I, I really don't know that much about it. We pretty much broke the Japanese codes on our own. We knew what they were saying by very early in the war, and they tested that by putting out a, a, a fake message saying that uh, the, 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 the fellows on Midway says our, our water distiller is broken down. And so they waited and the Japanese, in a coded message, sent out to say that the, uh, the water distiller on Midway has broken down so now the Americans knew that the Japanese were targeting Midway, so that's that was one thing that they, they knew that they'd worked on that. now. Now, the, the British developed, or the uh, two destroyers captured an Enigma machine and Enigma code books uh, from the Germans in 1941-1942, and they used that to, to break the German U-boat code, the naval code, in uh, at Betchley Park. So... The, the British destroyers played a vital role in in, in, in that part of the, the code breaking, and they were able to reroute some British con- or convoys going to Great Britain away from n- known areas where the u-boat uh, hunter packs were, were were done but I really don't know if the the British helped us with the japanese code that's that's beyond my knowledge if they did but the, and we did not help them at all in breaking the uh, the German codes. If you remember, there was a movie that was out several years ago about U 571, and it was an American movie about capturing an Enigma machine, and that never happened. And it, and it, if you talk to any British uh, seamen, they're still irritated about that movie, making the Americans the heroes, when it was the British that actually captured the Enigma machines. But one thing about Enigma machines, though, we could have captured our own in March of 1942. We did sink a U boat off of Nag's Head, North Carolina, not too far from. You know, just a couple hundred miles north of where you are in Beaufort, and it sank in shallow water. But we, we either did not have the technology to go in and get it. I'm not sure if the scuba was around or not. A hard hat diver opened the hatch to that, but he could not get in any further. But inside that submarine was an Enigma machine. But it was not recovered until sport divers in the 1993, I think it was, entered it entered the submarine, swam into it, and found that Enigma machine. So if we had had someone that was able to go into that submarine in 1942, we would have had our own Enigma machine, and we would have been working on the German codes ourselves. And it was just one of those missed opportunities that I'm not sure they could have done it anyway. I'm not sure if we had SCUBA was around in 1942 or not to send somebody in there. It's like well, nobody knew about the Enigma machine, so there'd been no reason really to get into that submarine. But but had we done that, we would have had it on an Enigma machine and the code books.
1: Now, I, I found it interesting when we tried to cross the Atlantic the first time. Glenn Curtis had delivered some um, Navy Curtis, what do they call them, flying boats, uh, to the Navy. And they came yes. up with this wild idea on how to help these planes hopscotch across the Atlantic Ocean. Tell us about that because if we tried to do something like this today, <laughs> with the way our budget is, <laughs> oh man, can you imagine what MSNBC and CNN would be doing to Trump if he tried this stunt? <laughs> but tell us about you're, this, you're talking, this, this amazing flight across the Atlantic.
6: Yeah, you're talking about the 1919 uh, crossing of the of that the, the um, uh, flying boats. We we had just bought these flying boats that the Navy did. And uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin D. Roosevelt, said, I've got I have got. don't know if he came up with the idea, but he essentially said, let's cross the Atlantic with these things to prove that we can fly across the Atlantic. And so he, he got 50 destroyers, brand-new destroyers, all of them, uh, and they decided to essentially formed kind of like a lifeline uh, across the Atlantic every 50 miles. So these destroyers were in a line uh, to sending out wireless messages to the, to the pilots of the plane saying, uh, follow this route, follow this route. They were f- shooting up s- searchlights into the sky. They were firing starlight shells into the sky so these pilots could see across the ocean. Well, they, they only one of them made it. The NC-4 made it across the ocean. This is 1919. Again, you know, Lindbergh went across 1927. Uh, and it took them several weeks to actually get across. They did in several legs. But what they did is those 50 destroyers, it gave their crews, their captains, excellent on-the-job training. The, 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 the captains, the navigators learned they had to stay 50 miles apart from each other. The gunners learned how to fire their guns. Uh, the wireless operators learned how to keep in contact with each other and then with these uh, airplanes in the sky. So it was excellent training in 1919, you know, just uh, uh, right after the war. So so training these fellows, it, it kind of looked like a boondoggle, I guess, to to, to some people. Uh, but it provided all of these Navy captains, all of these crews. This is, well, 50 ships, 300, that's 1,500 men uh, with excellent skills that they would use for the rest of their Navy careers.
1: Now, I want to jump ahead to 1923, off the coast of San Diego. It was like the worst naval disaster ever right this
6: was this is the the Honda point disaster uh, <clears throat> fifteen navy destroyers had just finished fleet week in San Francisco and they were going back to San Diego where they were based well, this is nineteen twenty three uh the these are the old thoughts that they that the wireless was still kind of a new fang, this newfangled device that's you know, with sending signals through the air, and I can't see it. They still didn't quite trust it. So these are guys that, that worked out navigation problems by looking at a compass and figuring out their speed. And they said, okay, if I go uh, 23 knots uh, in an hour, I'm going to be 23 knots down the way. But what they hadn't figured on was there had been an earthquake in Japan. And so now the waves from that earthquake were pushing against the ships. So... While they might have been going 23 knots, they might have only actually gone 21 miles instead of 23. Or, kind of, it, Knots is, is, is not quite the same thing as, as miles per hour. But they hadn't gone as far as they thought they were. So they t- made a left turn, but they made a left turn too soon. And so they thought they were going into the Santa Barbara Channel, but they were really going right towards a whole series of, of sections of rocks that was jutting out into the Atlantic Ocean, and they ran into these rocks. And these ships were following each other so closely <coughs> that they ran into the rocks, and uh, seven of them went down. Uh, they lost uh, something like fifty some odd men, I think, uh, and they all crashed into the 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 beaches. And the next, and luckily for them. The a railroad worker was walking home, and he saw some lights out on the ocean. He said, it's not supposed to be the lights on the ocean. He walked over to the cliff and could see these destroyers down below him. So he sent out the word, and they called in an emergency. And they he called in every all the railroad workers he could find. And so they went down and helped rescue these guys from the water and took them up. And the The ship captain, that squadron commander, and a couple of the ship captains were were court-martialed for for losing their ships, and uh, to his credit, the squadron commander says, all my fault, nobody else should be blamed, but the Secretary of Navy was pretty irritated (laughs) that he had lost seven brand-new destroyers, so he wanted to court-martial everybody, and it's still the worst disaster in naval history. You lost seven ships at one time, and 50-some-odd men were, were, were drowned because of it, and Uh, Not very well known. I did not know about it until starting to research it. It's the Honda Point disaster off Point Predaties, I think is the way you
1: pronounce it, off California. Now, there was a London Treaty in 1936, and it kind of limited the type of destroyers that could be uh, built, You know how many, the capacity, and so on and so forth. Um, But Japan decided, hey, I'm getting the short end of the stick. The heck with you. I'm not going to pay attention to this. So it, it caused a armed race, you can call it, concerning destroyers. Now, how did that work out? Well,
6: after the First World War was over, there was this pie-in-the-sky belief that if all the bureaucrats of the world sat down together, they could, they could outlaw war. And one of the things they, they did that was by starting to come up with these naval treaties limiting the size of ships and the number of ships and the tonnage of ships – and Japan bought into it for a while, but then we also treated Japan as, as a third-rate nation. We said, well, we could build 100,000-ton battleships. Great Britain can build 100,000 tons of battleships. You could build 55,000 tons of battleships. I, I don't remember if those, what, what the exact figures were. The Japanese did not like that. They were said, we're, we're being treated like we're, we're not on the same level with that. So they went, went along with that for a while, but then in 1928, they developed their own class of destroyer called the Fubuki class, which was miles better than anything we had, anything that any nation had. So by the 1930s, the Japanese says, you know what, we're just not going to pay any attention to any of these treaties that we've signed in the past. So, but, so that created an opportunity for the United States to start modernizing its own classes of destroyers. So we put out a commission. Some of these, up until that point, we were still using these old World War I destroyers, mothballing them. So we actually uh, cut up some of those in order to, to at least stay in, in spirit of these treaties. But then we started developing newer, modern-class destroyers. So it's kind of a, a weird thing that this treaty that was supposed to limit Uh, war and limit the types of destroyers really turned out to be a good thing for the United States because it allowed us to get rid of these obsolete destroyers. But under the treaty guidelines, we could start designing newer destroyers. So those became what they call the gold platers. And the gold platers was kind of a derogatory term that the old Navy salts gave them because they were so fancy. They had nice bunks in them, and they were roomier and and. Uh, had better f- dining facilities and everything, so uh, so they were much nicer and, and more modern than the old World War One style destroyers that these Navy veterans had grown up on. So it, it is kind of weird that this that the 1930s treaties that were supposed to limit the the size of the navies and the types of ships that they got. Really ended up working out to our favor because we were able to modernize. By that time, the Japanese weren't paying any attention to it anyway, and so we, the other nations, started saying, "Well, the Japanese aren't paying any attention to it; we're not either." So those treaties are pretty much broken. They, they were they existed, but nobody paid any attention to them. And that's when we started developing, like the USS North Carolina, the big the big battleship that's in Wilmington, North Carolina. It was the first true modern battleship that the United States had developed in 20 some odd years and we violated the, the treaty ourselves by having 16 inch guns I don't, I think we were supposed to be limited to 14 inch guns by treaties but the, we just said no nah, we're going to add 16 inch guns to the North Carolina and which later the Missouri and the Idaho and, and all of the other battleships modern battleships that came along too Clint yes,
7: I yeah, it,
2: I, sailed okay, on the, um, I sailed in the modern Navy and we had like air condition, three square meals a day, <laughs> and we had some of the most sophisticated weapon systems and, and guided systems and surveillance systems in the world. So my hat is off to those guys that fought back in those days, the 30s, 40s, even World War I, because they didn't have air condition. They, they didn't have all this high-tech stuff, but they still went out there and did their mission, complete their mission, and won the war.
6: Yeah, could, could you imagine what being down in the engine room would be like in the summer in the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific? Uh, oh
3: yeah. 110
6: degrees. And when you, you read the accounts of the men just going up to sleep on the decks, just to try and get some relief from the, the heat. And and this was still con- considered good duty if, as opposed to being in a foxhole someplace. But these fellows, uh, Kind of like airmen. Airmen was the, in World War II was the most dangerous job. You could take off from England and not come back again. The, the airmen, air crews, air bomber crews had the highest percentage of, of deaths. But a sailor in the South Pacific, you could leave your port and uh, 12 hours later be in a fight with the Japanese. And if you, uh, if, if you came back, you would go back to port and wait for the Japanese to come out again. It was, I, I liken it to two street gangs. Uh, you, you would uh, see each other in the street, fight for a while, and go back to your respective corners until one of you tried to come into the street again and That was opposed to the war in the Atlantic, which was four thousand miles long, and you, you You would fight close to the American coast, close to the British coast, and then try and survive getting torpedoed in the, in the middle of the Atlantic so uh, these fellows were tough young men. Uh, oh, I ran yeah. across an account by a master chief that said, we took these fellows from shining our shoes and delivering our newspapers and cutting up our meat, all three jobs which don't exist anymore, This struck me. And he says, we gave them work to do, so much work that they couldn't do it, and they loved every minute of it. They, they worked so hard, they, and they didn't show any fear when they faced the enemy. And I ran across another account by a captain of, of a ship that said, "We were all scared until the Japanese started firing at us. The, 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 when they started firing at us, it focused our young men. They knew that they had to fight back in order to survive." And he says, "Once once the firing was over, then the, once the firing started, the fear was over." And it's, it's kind of, again, the opposite of what you might think. You'd think if, the, if a Japanese airplane's coming right at you and you could look into that pilot's eyes, you would be afraid. But according to the captain of the ship, they were afraid until they could see that, that Japanese pilot's eyes. Once he helped them focus. And you think about, the, you know, like yourself, you were a young man when you went into the Navy, and in the the Navy – Helped you focus, and it's and it's something that uh, wartime, I guess, will do that, that that sort of thing. When you think of these fellows were 20 years old, going off to 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 do these things, it's really remarkable what the destroyer men did, and and uh, you know, for all of the navies, the Japanese sailors were were alike. They did they suffered the same same way we
1: did.
2: Yeah, you grew up fast. Now,
1: I got a question for you. I got a question for you because you you have your book covering pre World War I, World War I and World War II and you stop it at World War II. Do you have a, see a sequel coming out for after that including the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the War <clears> on <throat> Terror and how we are now using destroyers today? Well, uh at least not yet. I don't, I don't I don't have any any any
6: uh agreements with any publishers to come out there the 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 reason I ended it at, at World War II is it's a 300 and some odd page book now, uh, so uh, just did not have enough room for it. Now war changed after World War II, in Korea and uh, Vietnam. There were there no great uh, Vietnam Vietnamese North Vietnamese Navy that came out to to fight the uh, fight us in Vietnam. The the Koreans didn't have a great Navy to come out and fight. So warfare changed uh, at that point. To Korea and Vietnam, it became more of a uh, shelling installations and shelling uh, on shore. So the sea-to-sea the battles really didn't exist. Uh, they, they still fought. Uh, these same Fletchers you were know, around right through the 70s. <coughs> but the warfare changed, so I'm not sure that there's enough to write about uh, that would be as, as I guess, strategic uh, as, as it was in World War II, because you know, as we've talked about, combat has changed now from from what the U.S. Navy was in the World War II to what it is today, and, and it really changed. It started changing in Korea and Vietnam.
2: Clint, the only thing I can think of in modern <coughs> times as sea battles is, um, and it didn't even involve us. It was the Brits and the Argentines, I believe, in the Falkland Wars, where their ships fought each other.
6: Yeah, I think you're right. That was that was probably the last. That was probably the last of the great.
2: Uh, great sea well, battles.
6: I mean, great. last of the sea battles, and that was what, 1983 or
1: four, somewhere around in there.
2: Something like that.
6: Yeah,
2: and so well, we're,
1: d- yeah. we're down to our last, our last three minutes here, Clint. I want to thank you for uh, joining us. People can find this book over at ClintonJohnsonBooks.com, and you, you Clint, also have yeah. about a dozen other books. Uh, that are also up there that people can enjoy Because you are a historian want to thank you for joining us It's fascinating And we didn't cover one-tenth of what you wrote in the book The progression of the vessels And the heroic stories that went with them So you don't just concentrate on how the, the they have been morphed Into the ships they are today uh, But also the bravery of the men that were involved with it And the politics that went around behind it you covered all on. One, one story about the USS Murphy.
7: Recommend.
6: Let me tell one story about USS Murphy to show it's not all war. Uh, the Murphy um, uh, was ordered to carry the King of Saudi Arabia to meet President Roosevelt at the very end of the war, March 1945. So they, they met him and they, they looked up an encyclopedia entry about Islam in order to try and, and not offend the King. So they covered the decks with rugs. They put up a canvas uh, on the deck for the king to live in. So you can imagine what the captain thought about that, a flammable canvas on deck of a, of a destroyer. And he also they brought on sheep in order to uh, slaughter the sheep each day. So the fantail had a sheep pen on it. And the, great, the amazing thing was the son heard about the movie, the ship's movie that night it was going to be a Lucille Ball comedy. And he went to the captain and said, I want to watch this movie. And the captain says, you can't watch that movie. Lucille Ball is going to be in her underwear. And he says, I want to watch the movie, and if you don't let me, I'm going to tell my uh, father, the king, that you insulted me. And the captain says, all right, I'll let you watch the movie, but if you let tell your father, the king, that you saw the movie, we're going to be in a big jam. So he watched the movie, did not tell his king, and so today we have a oil relationship with, the, with Saudi Arabia that continues to this day 70 years later because this destroyer crew was able to communicate and, and make friends with this foreign culture all in the three-day cruise that they had. So, and it, you know, nobody fired a shot. Everybody got along with each other. Uh, there were some, some glitches along the way. But it's, it was one of the more amusing, amazing stories to me that, that, that it all came from this. The crew of the USS Murphy made uh, made this trip right. to the King of Saudi Arabia Would so you, easy for him.
1: Well, we've got to wind down because I've got 30 seconds left before I get cut off. So, Clint, I want to thank you for joining us. Again, people can find you at com. I want to thank everyone that joined us in the chat room, in the studio also. We will be back here on Friday. Same bad time, same bad station. Until then, good night and God bless. Thank you very much.